eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to Composite Two-Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast with a couple of one-star hosts, Chris 10K Trevino and Gerard Hurricane Martinez. Part of the uscfootball.com podcast family. The Cilantro Boys talk about everything from commitment breakdowns, game analysis, old recruiting stories, and, of course, some unsubstantiated rumors. And now, here are your hosts, 18K and Gerald. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, I just got to get right into it. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. It's uh, raining in the IE today. Uh, so it's cooler. It's more humid, but it's cooler. But uh, yeah, ready for the high school football season to start, which is next week. Got some good games uh, to open up the CIF weekend. And obviously, we're looking forward to the college football weekend to, at the very least, distract Trojan fans from recruiting. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at in not sugarcoating anything, no dilly-dallying about stuff. I just had to get right into it because I'll be honest, if you're listening to this specific episode of the Composite Two Star Recruits, you are a glutton for punishment because you are looking for pain. You are not happy right now. And last week's episode, we talked about a decommitment for USC. That was uh, Manasseh Titsay, the offensive lineman up from NorCal by way of uh, Africa. He flipped his commitment to USC to Florida State. We talked about that. And this week, it feels like it's gotten worse for USC recruiting because we're going to talk about another decommitment. And let's not dance around it. We know his name, Dakota Field, Sarah Quarterback. So that's obviously what we're going to be leading into with this cold open. Now, I don't want to scare anyone off, but there is not a ton of good news to talk about for this week's episode. It's going to be a lot of things. That, you know, a lot of fans have expressed frustrations about on social media over the last week. Obviously, USC has some new Big Ten colleagues in Washington and Oregon, which has uh, created a feisty debate on social media and the message board. So we'll talk about that. Decommit watch list. We'll, we'll have that. You know, there's a, a bunch of things to get into a little bit of fall camp. But for the most part, if you're listening to this episode. This is you just listening to us so you can kind of vent and yell at your uh, dog while you walk them or yelling your car while you're sitting in traffic. This is one of those episodes. So I just am putting a disclaimer at the top of this episode. Gerard, are you with me? 
I'm with you. It's not so much good news, bad news here at uscfootball.com. It's information, right? We That's are a good here way of it. to gather information, to disseminate information, to give our opinions on things, try to give some insight, but definitely I think it's absorbed <laughs> by the fan base as either good news or bad news, you know, and it's sort of it's black and white, those black and white. Yeah. There's and unfortunately, there's not just, okay, I'm going to process this and uh, we'll just wait and see. It's usually, Oh my God, I need to open up the window so I can go out in the ledge or it's, Oh, I'm going to go buy a new house and uh, go to go to Vegas because I'm so happy. You know, it's, it's either one of those two extremes, unfortunately. Right. So, Hopefully, maybe, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, we can help you process a little bit better. Maybe by the end of this uh, multiple hour episode, you can feel a little bit better. Maybe you feel a little less angry, feel a little less frustrated, or maybe you feel more frustrated. I don't know. But hopefully we can help you kind of work through those feelings of the last week or so. And before we get into all this, this therapy session of an episode – for reminder, just wanted to shout out the official sponsor of the Composite Two-Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. Gerard, you hinted at when you're so happy you just want to go out and buy a house. Well, if you do, you got to go with one of the top real estate agents in Los Angeles with over $600 million in sales and more than 200 five-star Zillow reviews. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. Dot com and check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. Again, that is at Meredith Real Estate. Check out all the listings and, and what she's got going on in the housing market. Gerard, cold open time. Not a great nice one. Transition. Not a fun one. Clean yeah, transition. I, one of your bests. Yeah, I, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. A lot of compliments must be given on this show because it's, as we talked about, not the happiest of things for USC fans. But the cold open, nonetheless, is going to center around one Dakota Fields, Sarah cornerback out of Gardena, California, four-star, a significant commitment for USC during the July, excuse me, June official visit period. He was kind of in the closer. He was not kind of, he was in the closer category and a school that a, a prospect that USC searched for in the end there to land his commitment. We talked about him on the last show. Because he took a last-second unofficial visit to Oregon, and obviously that kind of sets off some alarms, put some smoke out there for his recruitment, and he went out there for the big Saturday Saturday Night Live event. You know, got a recap with Greg Biggins about that trip. He did say he was still fully committed for USC. Nothing has changed with him and USC. But then August seventh. Some things did happen before that, and we'll touch on that before, but he went ahead and made his official flip to the Oregon Ducks. Now, I just want to do a trigger warning for all of you USC fans. I'm going to read this quote here, and it's it's not a fun one if you're a USC fan. So I just want you to give you a second. If you don't want to hear it, I'll give you a second. Let's turn off whatever. But here's the quote from Fields in his commitment story with Greg Biggins. Quote, This is where I always wanted to be. I always wanted to be a duck, so time to turn that dream into a reality. I kind of knew on my last visit, but I had to come home and sleep on it and realize Oregon was where I wanted to be. End quote. Gerard, 
it's a really tough quote to put out there, seeing as you had talked about how USC was the place that you wanted to be when you being Dakota Fields when he first committed back in June. So it is a tough 180 flip for uh, USC fans to hear and kind of process that. Yeah, it's words. Um, (laughs) I think, uh, I mean, to some extent, though, I think he's being honest about always wanting to go to Oregon because we talked about this last week, talked about it in the war room. You know, Dakota Fields had Oregon in the lead longer than he had USC in the lead Mm -hmm. over the past, let's say, 365 days. So when he committed to Oregon, uh, it wasn't necessarily shocking. It's so much the timing of it. From what I had gathered is Oregon really didn't push hard for him to decommit from USC on his unofficial visit. It was more like, we really want to bring you back up here for an official visit. We want you to see game day. And then we're going to really make that push to try to get you committed. So the expectations from what I were hearing at that point in time last week, uh, when uh, we had spoke to him, it was, you know, Oregon was sort of going to be there and lingering there. And while we had kind of laughed and made some comparisons with Malachi Nelson, then that sort of last minute unofficial visit, uh, when he was committed to USC to Texas A&M, the one underlying difference is that Malachi Nelson was never going to go to Texas A&M. That was more of a leverage play. I had been told from people, both sides of his recruitment, this isn't about Texas A&M. The real question is, does he take a visit to another school? Does he go look at Alabama? Does he go look at Michigan or some other school that was out there which was seemingly more of a threat to flip him at that time with Dakota Fields. We know Dakota Fields was a silent commitment to Oregon at some point. And so this was a little different from that standpoint. There was real possibility that Oregon could flip him. And it was more of, does this happen at some point during the season? Does he go take his official visit? And then it happens. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the questions that are coming from Trojan fans mostly revolves around NIL and why does this happen? And it's easy to pin it all on NIL. And understandably so. There's not a whole lot that has happened with the recruiting process between the point that Dakota Fields commits and Manasse Atite, the four-star offensive tackle from Modesto, California, who committed to Florida State. And today... There's yeah, really I mean, it's not, not like USC has played games and lost games and Oregon's like got out and beat a Big Ten team. There's nothing there's that's been on the field. There's been no wins. There's been, been no, no losses. losses. Well, there's been losses, but not on the field. Not on the field. Um, there has been no drop in academic ranking <laughs> from USC. There have been no coaching changes. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot that has really changed. Now, unlike with Manasseh Tite. Uh, This decommitment comes on the heels of Dakota Fields actually unofficially visiting Oregon. And we talked about that last week. It seemed like every time he went to Oregon, it became USC sort of out of sight, out of mind. And that's been a trend with several recruits and particularly the modern day prospects. They go and they visit USC. 
USC is back in it. In some instances, we're hearing maybe USC has actually got the lead right now. And then they go and visit other schools and USC drops into, you know, third, second place. It's really one of those things like what's the last thing said to that particular recruit. Now, the good news is I think USC will continue to be in Dakota Field's ear and they will have the ability to do that. They'll have the ability to continue to recruit them. And he has all his cards on the table now, right? He's decommitted, he's committed to Oregon. So now Oregon's the one that's up on the flagpole and USC's looking up their skirt instead of vice versa. So that's a little bit of a good thing. When it comes to NIL, you know, we've talked about this and we don't want to beat a dead horse uh, here with talking about NIL. I don't believe that was the driving factor in this particular recruitment. I think there was enough there with his familiarity, his relationships at Oregon. As we said before, we had spoken to him at varying points during his recruitment from his sophomore year going forward. And his eyes always lit up talking about Oregon, talking about his relationship with Demetrius Martin, talking about his relationship with uh, Coach Wadu, who was a guy that helped flip uh, linebacker from uh, Poly High School, Dylan Williams. Uh, he has an emotional connection. He is It's his dream school, and he's been on record as saying that. So he has also has an emotional connection to Oregon. Yeah, and it, I do think that NIL was part of – you know, what kind of changed his decision probably, you know, most recently is again, you know, what has changed, what's been on the table. There's not a whole lot, you know, again, USC hasn't played any football games. Oregon hasn't played any football games. There's been no coaching changes. There's really not been uh, anything significant minus the announcement that the big 10 would invite Oregon and Washington into the conference which I guess we can talk about a little bit later. Although my inclination, and I have not spoken to Dakota about this directly, so this is just more of me speculating in a vibe that that wasn't really a huge factor for them. Um, but I'm sure he got a phone call and was like, hey, man, you know, we told you we're going to the Big Ten and it's going to be big time and blah, blah, blah. You need to become a duck. And that just seemed like, hey, you know what? It's a good time to do it. I'm not going to wait any longer. But certainly I feel like there were several different factors at play, more so than with Manesse Atete, who I think NIL was absolutely a driving factor above other factors in his recruitment. Um, now, Dakota Field did have a relationship with California Power, uh, which is sort of a travel team, and they do set up and negotiate – NIL deals. Um, Brian Davis uh, runs that show. His partner is Michael Caspino, who I don't know if this is his self-proclaimed title, NIL lawyer, or that's just what the internet gave him. Um, but he's you know famous for going back and forth with some Miami fans, or excuse me, I think it was Florida fans, uh, when uh, Jalen uh, Jaden Rashada had committed to Miami and Florida fans were talking about NIL. And I don't know if they were just going after Rashada or uh, Miami in general, but he kind of got out there on Twitter and was basically saying that, you know, Florida's NIL situation is just a mess and it's run by millennials and a lot of Trojan fans are going, wait, are he's talking about Boulevard? Or is he talking about Florida? Um, <laughs> but that was uh, kind of an interesting thing. And so, you know, th they've been involved with, with a bunch of local players. I, I don't know if USC 
has actually gotten any commitments from any of those kids that have been involved. Uh, but that's, you know, sort of that aspect of, of, of a lot of top players recruitments and that's not going away anytime soon. So USC has to figure that out. Uh, but again, in this particular situation, I don't think you can just hang it completely on NIL and NIL deals and potential money and whatever Nike's going to do for you now and in the future. I, I do think there were more factors at play here. And if he would have commit to Oregon over the summer, nobody would have batted eye. That would have been like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we figured. Really, the fact that he committed to USC and then shut down the process, which I know I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise it again. I kind of wondered if USC should have just let him take that official visit, or even kind of encouraged him to take that official visit to Oregon to really vent this thing out, you know, to make sure that there was like no sort of last minute. I'm not sure. I need to go take my official visit, you know, in December or something like that. And then you're like, okay, that's a red flag. You know, we all saw the Josh Connerly commitment. So at this point, you know, USC knows, okay, he's no longer a part of the class. Um, we'll talk about, you know, some of the plan B's and sort of where USC has to go. Um, but I think, you know, you also have to look at what it means for USC considering the current roster. And I think that's kind of, important to know and to see you know where USC is right now with the depth chart of cornerback and sort of what they're looking for and maybe breaking that down a little bit right so you're you're looking at the corner I mean before we get into kind of the actual room of the cornerback I did want to say what it means from a kind of recruiting optic standpoint because it is a significant blow when you look at the type of player that Dakota Fields is. He's a a big time, you know, prospect, all American caliber kind of player. And we talked about back in June how USC kind of needed to get one of these big local cornerbacks with Xavier Brown, Marcellus Williams, or Dakota Fields. Lo and behold, they end up getting Dakota and Marcellus at the same time. Yo, hooray! That's two huge home runs for USC better than expected still got Marcellus and he's pretty locked in but you know losing Dakota is a big blow because just from an optic standpoint because he is a big local prospect Sarah High School pipeline school kind of getting flashbacks to uh Roderick Pleasant from last season kind of missing out on him him going to Oregon once again so you kind of bring up those old memories and now, cornerback is a position where USC, for the most part, has recruited well. They're well stocked in their room for the most part. So from a, you know, it's not an offensive lineman. It's not a defensive lineman. We talked a little bit about this with Roderick back when we talked about how big of a loss this is. It is hurts. It hurts from a local recruiting standpoint, maybe not as much from a position availability perspective. But also, you have to remember that Dakota was a was pretty much the main recruiter for the class, especially with the class without a 2024 quarterback. Dakota had taken a lot of that initiative to be the Pied Piper of this class. And that, you know, makes it kind of a double whammy in, in terms of losing him to a flip because he was reaching out to a bunch of different prospects on USC's recruiting board. So you do get that extra sting of kind of losing the guy who was the self-proclaimed main recruiter for USC, at least on a, on a social media kind of out there in the open 
also, you know, when I talked to him, he talked about how he was behind the scenes as well. But especially someone so visibly up front and in the public recruiting for USC on social media. Yes, I think that is a good point. And it is part of the reason why you thought it would take a little more and perhaps a little more time for him to kind of back away from that and then sort of shift himself maybe a little bit more over to Oregon. But yeah, he had been talking to a lot of recruits. It's interesting because personality wise, he's never struck me as that type of recruit, that type of player who's very vocal and wants to be, like you said, the Pied Piper of a class. Like a Zach Branch? Zach Branch type of guy. He's not super outgoing. Uh, Dakota Fields is pretty quiet and pretty low key, Um, not a super chatty type of guy. So the fact that he was on social media and was, you know, subtweeting and being involved with uh, retweeting certain recruits was a bit surprising. But, you know, the double edged sword of that is you're talking to a bunch of other recruits and maybe other guys are like, you know, I'm like an organ more or I'm going here or I'm going there. And all of a sudden, like, you don't feel like you're being able to make an impact. And then maybe it's like, well, maybe I should go somewhere else where I feel like I can get a little more momentum. It's interesting. I mean, it's been a recruiting dead period, uh, by the way, in July. So we were talking about like there's not a whole lot that's happened. Um, It's also a recruiting dead period. So there's not a lot going on from that standpoint as well in terms of visits and everything. That last week of July is the only week that you can kind of slip in there and have contacts face to face with recruits. So that's why a lot of schools have those barbecues and those pool party weekends like they had at Texas A&M when Malachi Nelson took that unofficial visit. And so it's, it is surprising, I think, time-wise uh, that, you know, he decided to decommit when he did, but I don't think it's surprising overall. Um, so we look forward, you know, and I guess before you look forward, you do want to look at the present and you do want to look at, in terms of eligibility, what was USC looking for from this class? I think they were looking for three cornerbacks, three-ish, mainly because you're going to have one of those players probably play nickel. And so I think there's a blurred line there. Ultimately, what they were looking for was five defensive backs. Uh, There was potential that they could take six, but I don't think that was ever really realistic. Uh, I think you're looking for three cornerbacks and two safeties or perhaps three safeties and two cornerbacks. Again, that line is a little blurred because you have those boundary corners that might end up playing nickelback slash safety. It really just depends on the player that you sign and what they look like from a prototype standpoint playing that position. Um, Are they a little bigger, a little stronger? Maybe you can shift them over to nickel. Are they actually a pure corner like Xavier Brown where you feel like you can put them man-to-man on an island? And I would say with Dakota Fields, he was a pure corner. Now, we saw him at the USC 7-on-7 tournament where he was a bit out of shape, uh, but he was still, you could see, you know, very talented player, a guy that was able to, for the most part, uh, lock down a lot of the better players at that tournament on his side. He was playing mostly field side uh, in that tournament. And I think, you know, he has the potential to play field side. I don't know if he has the acceleration at the top end to necessarily play 
wide side of the field in a man situation. I think with his size, you probably want him to be more of a boundary corner, more of a guy like a Trey Quan Feagans. And so that kind of segues us into talking about who USC has right now at the position and, and why they're looking to get, you know, two or three more players at the position this cycle. Uh, you've got Fabian Ross, who's about 5'11", 190, 195 pounds, a, a guy that's not big. He's not quite as tall as some of the other cornerbacks on the roster, but physicality wise, definitely a guy that could play in the nickel position. I mean, he, a lot of people talked about him when he committed to USC being physical enough to be kind of a quasi linebacker out there. Uh, so not necessarily the sort of pure corner um, that you would have with a guy like Damani Jackson, who's now going to be a sophomore, uh, but a, a guy that's physical and kind of, you know, not necessarily short. I'd say he's probably really closer to about 5'10 than 5'11. Um, mm -hmm. But compared to the rest of the room, <laughs> one of the smallest cornerbacks that USC has. Uh, Malachi Crawford's a freshman as well. He's probably the not a red shirt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of illustrating the point. A guy that's legitimately 6'4", 195 pounds. We still don't know if he's going to be an actual boundary corner or is he going to be a guy that actually plays more safety. Because uh, he really could do both with that body. And the aforementioned Traquan Feagans, who comes in, who's, who's still a freshman eligibility-wise. And uh, another guy who's like at 6'2", and 190, you know, 195 pounds, looks to me more as a boundary-type corner. The only guy that USC loses uh, to graduation is going to be Christian Roland Wallace, who is the only uh, senior who won't have any eligibility left uh, considering – the COVID waiver as well. And so, you know, Fields is in the mold of many of these players, certainly with Crawford and Feagans, uh, even Roland Wallace, who, you know, this sort of uh, where's Waldo as to where he's going to line up in the secondary. I mean, have they pushed him already back to safety? Is he playing nickel? It doesn't sound like he's playing wide side cornerback. Uh, and it kind of doesn't seem like he might, he might not be playing uh, boundary side either. Um, uh, uh, obviously if Jacoby Covington continues you know, his progression as a player, uh, he's a guy that uh, might make it easier to move around Christian Roland Wallace. So you have a group of big cornerbacks at USC. So Dakota Fields definitely, he fit the mold here. Um, if you look forward, and again, USC only technically loses one guy to graduation. Now there's always that potential. You could lose another guy, two guys. You know, with the transfer portal nowadays, it's really hard to predict who they're going to lose, you know, yeah, you even have a, as a coaching staff, personnel management wise, it's a tough read. You know, you're, you're sort of earmarking some guys that might not be playing a lot. Um, you got to keep your ear to the ground. You know, what schools are trying to contact certain guys uh, through third parties. And of course, you know, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, what's, what's the word they use? Um, I want to, it's not meddling, but what's the interference word that's illegal with transfers? Uh, 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 dang yeah. it. Why can't I know? I, 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 why <laughs> I'm can't blanking I, on it as well, but I'm nevertheless, there's something ironic tampering. about that. Tampering, tampering, tampering. Yeah. I couldn't tampering. think of the, the, the word, but, um, you know, it's not tampering if, if, uh, you know, a kid's unhappy and he, and he basically tells his high school football coach or, he tells uh, somebody who's got some connections to some other coaching staffs and then they start reaching out to other coaching staffs and they're like, yeah, we would, we would be interested if you wanted to transfer, you know, that's kind of how it goes these days. And so it's, it's hard to read that situation. 
because you're the last one's going to find out about it as the school the kid's not happy with. And, and again, you kind of have to consider playing time in, in some of these instances. But, you know, there's been instances where guys have transferred and, and they've gotten a decent amount of playing time early in their career and they're still ready to, to move on. So, you know, that's always a, a bit of a, a game trying to see who you could potentially lose as transfers. Uh, the easy part is to look at, you know, who's going to be maybe going to the NFL draft and who's going to be leaving because they're graduating. You know, that's the clear cut, easy uh, answer to trying to find replacements on the recruiting trail. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, USC was was looking to bring in a, a decent sized class at defensive back. And they had a, a few different guys come in on official visits. And I think going into the summer, we were talking USC really needed to get at least one out of the three locally. And that three were uh, Marcellus Williams, who they got committed, um, Dakota Fields, who they had committed and, and now is decommit, and Xavier Brown from modern day. So there's still one out of three. Two out of three was 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 absolutely golden. And you had Xavier Brown out there, which never got the vibe USC led for him or, or really made enough of a push. It always seemed like there was always that other school out there. And it probably was that school in the SEC. He ends up committing to Alabama. Uh, Alabama also gets Peyton Woodyard to flip from flip Georgia. Season comes early, Gerard. Which was interesting. Yeah, that was a kind of out of left field a little bit. Didn't really hear much about Alabama. But Alabama does a real good job of kind of sitting back in the weeds and gets into later summer, and everybody's talking about who's committing where in July. You know, who's committing where in June? Who's got the momentum? And Alabama's not in the top 10. They're 25 nationally. And you just know you've done this long enough. Alabama's going to get their commits. And so Alabama has <laughs> risen up the ranks. They're, I think, top five probably at this point. No, they're top 10. And it's one of those things where – you know, that's kind of how you want to do it. You can get guys to commit right after visits, and it's an emotional commitment, and sometimes that wears off. And, again, I don't think – They're number four, by the way. Number four nationally, yeah. So, yeah, they, they've had a pretty meteoric rise here over the summer from where they were, and uh, that's uh, notable. And one of those things that potentially USC could do maybe during the season, we'll have to get into that later. Um, I think right now the focus is – cornerback and if you want two to three what guys are still going to be there what guys could you possibly flip so you know uncommitted right now the only player that actually officially visited USC at the cornerback position over the summer uh is San Mateo California four-star Juco cornerback Sione uh Leello uh he also visited Oregon. A lot of people kind of vibed that maybe he was going to go to Oregon over USC. Uh, we have to check in and kind of see where he stands now and see if anything has changed. Oregon's got a couple of uh, commitments at the cornerback position. I think with Sione, he's a lot like Twaycon Figgins. You know, he, he it's a bit of a reach, in my opinion, uh, him as a as a cornerback, certainly as a uh, field corner. I think potentially he's a boundary corner, but he's a big kid. He's physical, um, you know, not necessarily the purest corner, I think, uh, that's uh, on the board. But he is the only guy that has not committed anywhere yet and did officially visit USC. 
Um, you also have Temple, Texas, four-star cornerback Selman Bridges, who USC recruited but kind of cooled on because they think they felt like they were potentially going to fill up. And I think Arkansas went all after him, and they got him committed over the summer. He didn't take an official visit to USC, but talked a lot about potentially visiting USC. And I think that's a visit that could maybe happen still at some point down the road, if USC really pushes for it. Uh, Santa Ana, modern-day four-star cornerback, Xavier Brown, we talked about him, commits to Alabama. USC still got to put pressure on him, right? They still got to have a good season and hope that some of that momentum, which if they have a really good season, let's say you win a conference championship, you win 12 games, you're potentially going to the college football playoff. Um, that is going to create more momentum locally than it's going to nationally. And if you can get kids on unofficial visits, and obviously you're not going to get them on an official visit. He's already taken his official visit to USC. Uh, you can maybe build a little momentum and you can give kids uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, second guessing, cold feet. And we saw a little bit of that happen even with uh, Bryce Young back in the day when he was coming out of modern day. And he'd been originally committed to USC as a quarterback. And uh, there was all this talk that Clay Helton was going to get fired. Clay Helton was going to get fired if he didn't have a good season. Lo and behold, USC goes out and they lose to BYU. And his family was convinced Clay Helton was going to get fired. And there were also questions just about the recruiting at USC, the offensive line at USC. He was a smaller quarterback. And there was a lot of talk coming from Alabama. You know, look at our offensive line. They're an NFL offensive line. We are going to protect your son and pass protection much better than USC. USC's going through three quarterbacks this season because of how badly they've recruited the offensive line, which wasn't wrong. It was a very good tactic and approach for negative recruiting by Alabama. And so that was enough to dislodge him. But I can say Bryce Young ended up on campus for like freaking four hours playing basketball with Graham Harrell uh, right before signing day. And a lot of people, and this is where the famous quote from Mike Bone came from, recruiting is going a lot better than people want to believe, I think was what the quote was. And part of that had to do with what the coaching staff was feeling in regards to recruiting Justin Flo and Bryce Young, both those guys, and particularly Bryce Young, because everybody and their brother knew that he was on campus and he would been you know, hanging out with the coaches. And so there was this feeling like, hey, you know what? We we can flip them. That didn't happen, which was obviously very – That's not the huge. famous uh, Mike Bone interview where you mentioned like multiple silent commits. Is that the one? Is that the same one? Something along those lines. I don't remember if he said anything about silent commits, but I do remember the whole recruiting is going much better. And it was really the last part, which was then anybody – wants to admit or wants to believe. And I'm like, everybody wants to believe recruiting's going well. If you're talking to the Trojan nation, the Trojan fan base, the Trojan family, I mean, these people are lined up to, to, to hear good news. You know, even if it's not true, they want to hear it. And it obviously didn't come to fruition, but that was partly why. And so if you can have that kind of season with that kind of, instability around the coaching staff and still give a kid a, a second thought about, ah, should I go to Alabama or not? I, I think there's potential that, yeah, you could get back involved with uh, some of these local guys like Xavier Brown. Um, there's, you know, other players like uh, Mesquite, Texas, three-star cornerback, William Nettles, who actually came down 
for one of the USC elite camps and, and played really well at the elite camp. USC at that point wasn't really recruiting him. Didn't seem like they were seriously interested. He does have a scholarship offer from USC, but it's one of those situations that he really wasn't being recruited by USC at that point. And so that would obviously be like a plan almost C at that point. You're kind of down on the board a little bit. So we'll see where USC goes, you know, for numbers. And and obviously there's the transfer portal. At this point, I don't even want to mention the transfer portal. It's like we'll get there when we get there. You know what I mean? We'll we'll cross that bridge when we get to it because that again, I think long term is a tougher sell in building a championship team year in and year out. It just doesn't seem like that's the model. And it doesn't even seem like the model that USC really wanted to go for this cycle. I don't know if it's the model they wanted to go for last cycle, but it is what it is. And it is a bit of a safety net. And if you're not landing these kids out of high school, well, you got to get them somewhere. But I think, yeah, long-term, it's going to be difficult to sell that and to be able to turn these rosters over with transfers instead of, you know, building some of these guys up from the high school level. And you actually added sort of a uh, look ahead kind of overall factoring in the USC football upcoming season and potential flips for USC. So we'll talk a little bit more about flips down the line. I think right before our break, we'll talk about that. But yeah, the, we, we talked a lot about Dakota Fields and kind of what it means. And obviously you look at the cornerback room and, you know, USC potential other cornerbacks USC can kind of pivot to throughout the fall. But now I kind of wanted to move a little bit more, you know, kind of keep digging into the pain of this week for USC. We did have sort of a uh, decommitment watch list for the Trojans because they've suffered suffered two back-to-back weeks with uh, Atete and Field. So I think it's just it just, just that we want to kind of get it on the radar, just be aware of it so it doesn't kind of like sneak up on you. And, and we're not saying any of this is going to happen. We just want to kind of put it out there up front since we're already kind of you know, being therapeutic for USC fans in this episode, Gerard. Yeah, we're trying to make this quick because as I've said in previous podcasts, we don't like to drag out bad news. We've been conditioned by the fan base that uh, bad news needs to just be reported and just move on. <laughs> we, we're, we're not going to like uh, sit here and uh, try to foreshadow a bunch of um, potential decommitments. And again, this is just kind of keeping your ear to the ground, guys that uh, might be taking additional official visits elsewhere. I, I can look at several players on the commit list that could end up taking visits other places. And even with a good season, some of these guys, you know, have expressed some interest in maybe going elsewhere uh, for a visit just to check out a game, et cetera, et cetera. And as we know, they have unlimited official visits these days. And so it's a little easier, you know, if you've already taken three or four, you can still go and take another official visit. And that's not going to be a question unless it's to a school you've already visited. Obviously you can't do that twice, but nevertheless, uh, USC right now, what are they ranked nationally 15 15. with 15 commits. And that's a low number of commitments uh, compared to most other teams. Uh, Most schools at this point are in the 20 plus category. Uh, Just looking at where they would be, in the Big Ten, they would be behind Ohio State, who is number one, and Michigan, Penn State, which is third right now. They're having a pretty good class in the Big Ten, and Oregon is right ahead of USC in terms of the Big Ten recruiting rankings. 
And on that list, all but Ohio State, all those schools have 20-plus commits right now. I think Ohio State's at like 19 right now. Um, but going forward, you know, one guy that was a surprise commit uh, for us was Atlanta four-star defensive end Cameron Fountain. And that was a guy that, you know, a lot of people back there was telling me Tennessee is the school to beat. And there might actually be maybe another school in there. Kind of depends on how hard Georgia is going to go after him. And lo and behold, that first week of June, he comes out here, takes his official visit. I speak to him Sunday morning uh, as he's headed out of L.A. And um, by the time he touches down in Atlanta, he decided he wanted to be a Trojan, which was surprising. Seeing that I had spoken to him and he had talked about still wanting to take his official visits. Um, at that point, he was talking about Tennessee, Georgia, and maybe Miami. And right now, I'm hearing it's more Auburn and Miami that are kind of making a push to get him back on campus. Um, it seems like Tennessee's out of it. If For those who remember on social media, uh, Vol fans had uh, a little Mama bit Mama Fountain. A, Mama Fountain. Yeah, had, had a little bit of a back and forth with uh, Mama Fountain. And uh, she said some things and they said some things. And from what I understand from a, a close family friend, that uh, pretty much ended um, <laughs> the contact between Tennessee and uh, and Fountain, at least, you know, at that point, uh, I haven't you know spoken to him uh, in recent weeks. But, you know, at the end of summer, uh, I had a conversation and uh, it was kind of a, a little bit of a running joke uh, about uh, Vol fans on, on Twitter uh, calling out uh, Cameron Fountain, which goes to tell you, don't get on Twitter if you're a Trojan fan and get into somebody's subtweets or replies uh, if he decommits from USC, because it's probably not going to end well unless you're saying, hey, man, congrats. You know, whatever. I, I, a lot of Trojan fans have a hard time not saying see you in the portal, which is still disrespectful. Like, that's not a thing to say because you're basically dooming the kid at the school that he just committed to. And that's never going to be a good look. So I would just stay off social media, contacting recruits altogether personally. But nevertheless. Um, so, yeah, that those are the two schools that I've, I've heard recently, you know, still being involved, still being in contact. Uh, Clearwater, Florida, uh, four-star center, Jason Zandamella. You know, there's been some talk about him in Florida State. You know, obviously, Lucas Simmons, uh, the former uh, four-star offensive tackle from the same school, Clearwater International Academy, went to Florida State. That isn't really a big factor. Uh, this would be one of those NIL-type things. And, you know, I had spoken to his coach quite a bit, and NIL wasn't a factor, according to him and what have you. But I have to put him out there just, just because international players. And there's always mm -hmm. some international interesting subplots and things that go on. So you just never know when uh, some Florida State booster decides to jump on a plane and go to Mozambique and uh, go visit his family. You know, you just get kind of stuff <laughs> seems to happen uh, sometimes. So, you, you know, with there being some smoke there, you can't completely, uh, you know, put it out of sight, out of mind. And like I said, I, I could go down the list. I don't want to make this, you know, a, a doom and gloom and, and sort of chicken little type of podcast. Oh, you know, all these guys are going to just decommit all of a sudden. That's not the way it works. But, you know, obviously there's some things and, and perhaps the elephant in the room is that first week of June and just maybe official visits in general and things that were said, expectations from the coaching staff, perhaps with NIL that weren't necessarily met. Um, that's going to be something that kind of remains a question up until signing day and seeing, 
you know, what the approach is as the season gets going. Definitely the potential of being able to get back in it with how you play on the field and the buzz that will be around the program. And it will be a lot louder than it was last year because nobody was really anticipating USC to win 11 games. Now they're expecting, now they're expecting, (laughs) (laughs) I had a little bit of a, like a, I had lag there. A little bit of D sick brain and mouth. Uh, But the expectations are now that USC is going to win 11 or 12 games. And so more eyes uh, from the recruiting trail are going to be on USC and that will potentially help them um, if, uh, you know, they, they still have some contact with some of these kids, you know, get some unofficial visits. Uh, like I said, you know, during the, the summer, uh, you know, getting all those official visits, those are off the board now. So any of these guys that, you know, decommitted that already taken their official visits or committed elsewhere, you know, you got to bring them in on an unofficial visit. And that's sort of a weird gray area now with recruiting and collectives and NIL you know, we talked about Caleb Williams never actually officially officially visiting USC. Um, that's why he was at like the Rams game and the Lakers game. You can't do that uh, if you're uh, USC. You can't uh, have kids and, and take them to Laker games and take them to uh, to, to Dodger games and, and Rams games. And um, you know, I thought the rule was just kind of across the board. Um, you could not take them to uh, professional sporting events. Uh, I think it's a little more nuanced with that, and, I, and I'm sure there's certain things from a monetization standpoint. Uh, but that's an interesting thing that, you know, I, I got to tell you, if um, you know, if it was a lot of other universities, and you brought in their whole compliance staff, you brought in their coaching staffs, they probably would immediately try to get some type of rule that overturned that. Try to get some type of imp- uh, in, um, imp- oh man, I'm having a hard time. It's the freaking humidity. It's, yeah, I, some Garage type Martinez of, is going down. <laughs> some type of interpretation within the rule that would allow you to take advantage of those things, right? You know, like uh, you know, take them to uh, to to professional games, Laker games, and what have you. You know, there's a rule in terms of how how far away from the campus you can go. And, and how much money you can spend on recruits and all kinds of stuff. But it seems like a lot of that gets sidestepped to some extent. Um, maybe not the away from campus rule, uh, but certainly in terms of how much you can kind of spend on recruits. You know, you can put them on a multi-million dollar yacht. And, you know, I, a lot of that came from the uh, Willie Williams recruitment. And I think this kind of goes back before your time, Chris, but there was a linebacker at a pace Miami high school it was a five-star linebacker. His name was Willie Williams. And USC was kind of sort of involved with him for a bit. Um, this was during the uh, Keith rivers era of recruiting. Um, I believe Willie was a year before Keith rivers, or maybe he was a part of that class as well. But the Miami Herald, I think had a recruiting diary with Willie Williams. And so each official visit, unofficial visit, he would go on uh, about what he did. And it was like a very kind of, it was a little more detailed than you get out of most recruits. And so, you know, he went on about these lobster dinners he was getting and throwing away half of a, uh, a prime rib steak and just like just crazy over the top stuff that these schools were doing. 
um, to wine him and dine him. And that's when the NCAA was like, oh, wait, you know, we kind of have to step in and make some rules so this doesn't look so extravagant. It's kind of like getting ridiculous with the limos and all these private planes that are flying kids in because, you know, if you're going into, let's say, Nebraska, um, you know, you don't have like an international airport unless it's like Omaha or something and you, you're like farther away, they would just fly you in privately, you know, maybe from Chicago. And it's like, okay, that's, that's a little bit going over the top trying to host a kid for 48 hours. So the visit rules have changed over the years. You know, at one point it was only one parent that you could bring along and now it's two parents, two guardians. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff that is, that has changed over the years and it's probably going to continue to change now that you can basically pay for a kid to come out and have it as some sort of charity event or something. And, uh, basically, uh, put it on the bill as that, but, um, there's going to be plenty of interesting things that happen. And if USC again, can get some momentum, um, you know, maybe they get some of these kids back on campus and, you know, they're able to turn the tide a little bit. Garage Martinez, I'm going to give you a little bit of break, and I'll take the reins on our next two points, which are just a couple of recruiting updates for a couple of uh, major USC defensive prospects, one being Quincy Orchard, edge rusher Jalen Harvey out of my home state of Maryland, and then Salem, Virginia, four-star linebacker Chris Cole. I'll start with Jalen. Brian, Brian Doan had an update talking about where things stand with Harvey. And basically, you know, his recruitment is kind of coming down to the the, the end here. I, th- I think he's been on record as saying, you know, he wants to make a commitment before his senior year, which will be coming up very quickly. I believe they start next month, early September. So we'll be looking to see a commitment date kind of being set for him. But, you know, USC, Penn State are kind of the two lead schools there with Maryland pushing or trying to push. And as, as it was stated, the Terps need to make up some ground with him, but still Penn state has the crystal ball lead and it seems like it's holding there for now, but the Trojans are very much in this race. We'll have to see how that one plays out. And then the other one being four-star linebacker, Chris Cole, obviously linebacker is a position of need for the Trojans after some misses. And they made a, you know, several new offers in the position, but Chris Cole is one of those guys who we thought could get back on campus for his official visit during the season. And lo and behold, a little scoop from uh, five stars only, Jared Perez talking to Chris Cole, and he has slated his September 2nd will September 2nd will be his official visit with the Trojans. And kind of shortly before JP got that, you know, Cole set his uh, uh, recruitment date or commitment date for September 10th. So, he has a finalist list that includes Georgia, Virginia Tech, Miami, Tennessee, Penn State, and the Trojans. So right now it's shaping up that USC is going to get the final official visit before his September 10th uh, commitment. But University of Georgia, the Bulldogs, have also picked up several crystal balls for him. So this is going to be an interesting one. We'll see if he even you know kind of makes it out for that trip on September 2nd. But that is a little bit of update with two of their big defensive priority recruits. Out of those two, uh, Harvey, I've gotten the most positive feedback on. I think USC feels like they're right there for him. And the fact that he didn't pull the trigger and commit to Penn State earlier in the summer is a pretty good sign. Now, my hunch, reading between the lines, talking to a few different people, 
is that family still wants to keep him close to home. And that's where Maryland comes in. And Maryland's kind of been there, kind of hung in there. And there have been people that have kind of pushed to prolong his recruitment, kind of trying to give Maryland a chance to get their foot in the door a little bit more. I've gotten the vibe that Jalen probably would have commit to USC after his official visit in July. I think if he makes that decision, I think he was originally going to make it around July 4th. I think it might've been for USC. It's kind of hard. It's been so long now. It's kind of hard to know whether it's, you know, kind of come back to Penn State at this point. I think that there's a lot of confidence with Penn State. And the confidence that I get about USC is more sort of USC-centric from a source standpoint. So you kind of take that with a grain of salt. You know, those reads have been wrong in the past. So, you know, it's it's one of those things that I think from a read standpoint, there really hasn't been a whole lot of consistency there. And that's unfortunate. You know, I think, you know, that's one part of the recruiting process that is um, kind of undervalued. You know, you kind of need to know where you really sit with players and whether you're getting them or not, you know, and we've seen some guys that I, I've, I've heard some very positive, uh, very confident statements coming of, of their announcements only to see those players go and commit other places. So that's one of those things that, um, you know, when you're a losing program, that stuff happens a lot, you know, in the Clay Helton era, uh, there were a lot of lies told to that staff uh, over the course of recruitments where they liked Clay Helton and they liked their the coaching staff and they didn't want to, you know, necessarily say anything bad or, 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 or say no. And so there was, you know, instances where, you know, coaches thought, oh, man, we're going to get this guy. We're going to get that guy. And they ended up going somewhere else. And so, you know, with the winning and providing a better product on the field from a development standpoint, I think that will change. I think that is something that comes with having more success. And certainly, I, I think just in general, who you can recruit from a ceiling standpoint as a coaching staff will be greater. You know, the, the more wins that you have and if USC gets rolling. So, you know, ultimately, what's important? What, what does all of this mean? What is all of this about? winning football games. It's not about winning recruiting titles, that that is meaningless if you're not winning football games. So there are plenty of schools that have come and gone over the last two, three decades. You know, I remember, you know, Ron Zook squads and, and all kinds of coaches, which were kind of flash in the pan and were great recruiters. And, oh, this school got this class and that school got that class. And it doesn't really have any longevity because it's not translated on the field as wins. So at the end of the day, that's what it's about. And if USC is winning football games and, you know, the fan base shouldn't really be complaining about recruiting. I understand the logic to, well, listen, you know, we have to make sure that the talent level in the future is there to be able to continue to win games. Okay. The, the future winning is basically all going to be on the future talent that we have, right? One in the same. But when you see what USC has been able to done with the transfer portal and, and with guys on the roster now from a player development standpoint, if they are able to win a conference title and they're able to get to the college football playoff here within the next two years, 
you're really doing that with the majority of the players that you either had transfer in or players that were already on the roster from the previous staff, which wasn't recruiting particularly well, uh, especially kind of towards the end there. So, you know, you kind of have to take a step back and be patient and allow all this to play out to a certain extent. Uh, certainly, it's frustrating for the Trojan fan that was around during the Pete Carroll era because once Pete started winning games, you know, they go six and six that first year. So we have to remember first year for Pete Carroll was not 11 wins. It was six and six, but they did show a lot of promise because those were close losses. They were much, much more competitive in all of those games, especially the ones that they they lost. You could see where the improvement of the team was there. And then they have that next year in 2002 when they go to the Orange Bowl and they beat the wheels off of Iowa, which was an interesting game because Troy Balamalu's not playing in the game. Iowa runs back to kickoff for a touchdown. You're thinking, oh, wow, okay, well, that great season that USC had was – it was a great season still. You know, it's still progress, but this this is not a good start to a game. And then USC just completely blew Iowa out. You know, there was just nothing but that kickoff return for a touchdown, and the rest was all USC. And that's when you started to see the wheels get in motion with recruiting, like almost immediately. And you could even argue before that, even after six and six, you know, getting Sean Cody and getting some of these players, those were big deals for USC. And we have not seen that yet. We saw some of the good players that they got in 2022, which were really just holdovers from the Oklahoma staff that Lincoln Riley brought over. But in 2023, with that class as a whole, even some of those guys we're not seeing like, I guess, just that sort of cornerstone guy that USC was able to get away from some other, you know, school. You know, and we thought maybe Josh Connerly would be that guy. You know, that would be sort of the late 2022 franchise offensive tackle where USC was playing from way behind, way behind. You have the coaching change. And it's just like USC had to kind of come in the last minute with the new coaching staff and make their pitch. And it looked like they were going to get them at a position which they had not recruited well for the past three cycles. So, you know, you get the best player in the country at that position. That's a big deal. Are you and only referring all- to 2022 class? That was 2022. And then 2023. I mean, you could argue Tackett Curtis maybe is in that conversation. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put that on Tackett Curtis. I think that was a great head-to-head win against Ohio State for sure. But I don't know if I would say that's like the cornerback. So you're talking about like five-star top 10 player kind of deal. Yeah, I'm talking about a bit of a game changer that you kind of build around. He kind of changes the defense. I mean, I'm talking about Sean Cody and what Sean Cody gave to the program. And maybe that's just because I do put more weight on local recruiting than maybe other people do. And and that was a a big deal, keeping him home away from Notre Dame. And it was that shift away from all these Southern California players leaving the region to go to Miami, Tennessee, and Florida State, because that was the trend. And it was just a growing trend. And it went on a year after that, and you had guys like Lorenzo Booker and Chris Ricks and DJ Williams, all those top players in California leaving and going across the country. Uh, but then, you know, it was like Sean Cody was the first guy, which everybody thought was going to Notre Dame. Um, the old story is Ed Erdron showing up to one of his games during the season. 
and Sean Cody's dad seeing him and going, why are you here? <laughs> I mean, that's how that's how he sold. He was supposedly on Notre Dame and how out of it USC was. And Ed was just like, we're, we're going to keep recruiting them. We're going to keep going. And they were able to win that recruitment and then parlay that into that development, you know, with that group, which, you know, ended up being Sean Cody and Mike Patterson, Kenichio Deasy. And so you had you had a, a I think I think that's like a microcosm of what's super important for USC and what we have to watch for it's getting the franchise guy, which was Sean Cody. Okay. He was a five-star uh, defensive end, uh, embraced his inner Bubba, like we will talk about later in this podcast, and and moved down to being a very dominant three technique for USC. This was a guy that was extremely dominant as a weak side pass rusher coming out of Los Altos High School. He was a very good player that could have said, you know what, coach, I'm good. I'm, I'm all CIF. I'm a five-star as a rush in. I'm going to stay on the outside. But instead, saw the body type, saw what he could do. Ed Ergeron convinced him, move in. I'd love to actually talk to Sean a little bit about that, like the conversation. And, you know, was it him that came to that determination? Like, okay, I think what my ceiling is going to be highest at is moving inside or or Ed really sold him on it. Did Pete sell him on it? I don't know really like how he made that decision to move inside, but it was obviously the best for him. And I think it was, we can the, get him on this podcast, Gerard. He is a cilantro boy. I think we can get him <laughs> on. We can do it. Next time I see him, I'm going to pitch him. So, but, but he, he made that move and it was a big move, you know, just emblematically. But then at the same time, okay, so that's the big time West Coast guy. Number one player, number one defensive player in the state. I can't remember if he was a number one overall player in the state. But then you also had Mike Patterson and Kenny Chodizi, who were not big time five star. I, I, I don't even think they were four stars. I think Mike Patterson might have been maybe by somebody a four star. But neither of those guys, it was really Lawan Ramsey, um, who was uh, the not Lawan Ramsey? It was um, uh, Bernard Riley, actually from Los Alamitos, who was high, the highly ranked player of that group. He was like the big guy of the group, and Mike Patterson ended up actually, you know, beating him out and, and, and being, you know, the, the bigger star who ended up going on the NFL and, and having a, a good NFL career. And in Kenny Chiodizi, who ended up being, I think, drafted higher than anybody of that group, and he was 340 pounds coming out of lonely little private Verdum Day High School. And so you had that combination of recruiting the local five-star guy, okay, locking that down, and really being able to make that a recruitment statement, and then also bringing on the development guys who turn out to be good players for you. And I think that's the combination you have to have at USC in the defensive front seven. You're going to have to find the guys that you're going to develop, but then you do have to pepper them in with you know the whole brick and mortar, those are the bricks. Sean Card, Sean Cody's a brick, man. He's a big, shiny, pretty little red brick. You're like, oh, that's so smooth. God, that's a good looking brick. But you need that mortar to go around him. And and it, USC was able to do both those things, and that's what made it special. But the re- turnaround of recruiting was pretty quick with Pete Carroll, man, and and really took off when they went down to Auburn and they handed Auburn a loss uh, with that uh, sort of mega team that they had. Um, on the road, you know, in SEC country. And that was like when it went from, okay, USC's, they're recruiting well to, okay, USC can recruit nationally. They're, they're going to go across the country and go pluck some players now uh, because of what they're doing. So, you know, we're still in that infancy with USC and Lincoln Riley and what happens. And certainly 
there's a lot more going on uh, with the NIL and with the transfer portal. The transformation of college sports right now is in a fever pitch and, and much more so than what you had when Pete Carroll came to USC. But I understand the frustration because people keep going back to that era because that is a notable bookmark era for USC. It's a championship era for them. So and it's and it's, and it's you know modern enough that they can go back and they can remember well, we got these recruits, you know, first year we were already getting these guys. And once we beat Iowa in the, in the uh, Orange Bowl, you know, we had these guys that we got, you know, locally we were starting to already lock it down. And, you know, in the second year after winning 11 games the first year, I think people are already kind of looking at this like it's the, the third year of Lincoln Riley because of those 11 wins. And that, you know, unfortunately probably brings a little more pressure and it, it raises expectations higher than what they really probably should be at this point. I feel like this is a good segue into our next kind of ending point before the break, which is something you added at the very, before we jumped into and started recording, which is the kind of flips that USC could make by the end of the season, because I think so many people are tired of recruiting at this point and they just want the dang season to start. And with a potentially amazing season from USC, the recruiting will kind of flow back to the Trojans. So it we, we talked about it last season for Lincoln's uh, inaugural season at USC. Like how many wins, what does it do for the recruiting class? And I'm sure, Gerard, in the next you know month or so, we're going to get plenty of questions about, you know, when USC is 3-0 and and they have some very impressive wins and maybe the defense looks better. They're going to we're going to get a lot of questions about, OK, what does USC's class look like if they get 12 wins, if they go to the cultural playoff, if they beat Oregon and Autzen, if they avenge themselves in the college and the in the Pac-12 championship, what does the class look like? So you just you thought we should kind of look at that uh, quickly, kind of before the season actually gets going in about two weeks, two weeks from Saturday. Kind of, <laughs> kind of, I think kind of have the idea of what we were talking about. And it comes kind of did a long segue into that one. <laughs> we, it kind of comes from the hypothetical, right? And I love a hypothetical looking at the potential bright side, because that's what's going to come. You want to have momentum and recruiting going into the season. And, and clearly USC doesn't really have that right now. Um, that's kind of part of the reason you make that big summer push with recruiting. You want to get it partially done, have the core of your class done and be able to sort of use that as a platform to then close down on maybe just, you know, a, a few more recruits at some point during the season, because these days, most of your class, the majority of your class is going to be committed by the time you get into September, most schools. That's why with many of these schools, they're plus 20 already, you know, looking at the top 10. So with USC 15, obviously they've got a lot of room there. And it remains to be seen how aggressive they're going to be to fill certain positions out of the high school ranks. We look at linebacker. We talked about this last week with a flurry of new scholarship offers for the 2024 class. Clearly they want to take Somebody, And if it's a plan B or plan C, then that is what it is. Uh, but they want to get a high school linebacker. They are not waiting 
to see what it looks like in the transfer portal. So they're going to go out there and they're going to make their offers. We haven't really seen that yet at some of these other positions. And so we're waiting to see, is this a matter of USC still feeling some confidence with certain players locally that they can flip them? Or is this more confidence that they'll just be able to go in, recruit a transfer in a week or so, and be able to bring in a guy that's able to play right away? And so they don't have to really worry about recruiting the high scorings. We've seen that with some other programs. Clearly, UCLA is taking that approach. USC has taken that approach the last two cycles. They really didn't want to take that approach. Just judging how aggressive they were with high school recruiting over the summer, they wanted to build this class to be, you know, 20, 20 plus. I, I would think it would probably end up about being 20, 21 um, in all for this for this cycle. But again, is that going to happen now that you've you know, subtracted some of these players? So we'll look at some of the guys that USC was at some point in time, at least head to head with another school uh, in terms of recruitment. You know, they've had more players come in. But when I look at the visit list, when I look at the offer list, there's certain players I look at and I go, well, you know, there was something there with USC, which really was of interest to that prospect and enough that he had serious consideration for USC. What changed? What's different? Because that thing could change again and it could end up being where USC is on the right side of the coin that day. So I think one guy that comes to uh, mind is Kingston Valley Umuasa, the four-star linebacker from St. John Bosco. Came down to USC, Ohio State, and Notre Dame. He ends up committing to Notre Dame. USC's going to play Notre Dame. Notre Dame's got a lot to prove this season. They had a very pedestrian season last season. They didn't look good on offense at all. They are a team that is kind of built on defense. But if they have another bad year, it might be cheap for them to fire Marcus Freeman as a head coach. You know, right now, Marcus Freeman is kind of the Clay Helton of Notre Dame coaches. Uh, not to that extent, because he was a coordinator and he successful was coordinator. a successful coordinator. Yeah, someone who a lot of different schools were after as a coordinator. But I put an asterisk next to that because he was a defensive coordinator under a defensive-minded head coach in Luke Fickle at Cincinnati. And that's always a bit of a, uh, who's really running the defense? Mm -hmm. Who's really designed the defense? Who's put it together? Who's managing the personnel? And so you do kind of see, okay, you know, it, it was Marcus Freeman really ready for this gig? So we're going to see what happens with Notre Dame this year. It would definitely behoove USC to go out there and beat them. Uh, a, a lot more soundly than they actually beat them last year. I mean, they were whooping them last year in certain aspects of the game, but then kind of allowed them to stay in the game long enough that it kind of became close at the end. And that was, you know, one of those games where defensively a lot of people were, you know, very critical of Alex Grinch and, and sort of their uh, general scheme. So we'll see. You know, there's a head-to-head -head battle there that USC can win, and there's a potential that you could see some coaching moves if Notre Dame doesn't have a good season. Xavier Brown, we already talked about him. And USC, I think it came down to hit USC and Alabama at the very end. And this is just a, you know, does he get cold feet? Does he feel like, you know, I don't need to go to Tuscaloosa? 
to go play football and to get drafted and to be developed. If USC has a good year, you know, potentially it puts it in the back of his mind that he doesn't need to leave California um, to, to go and accomplish his goals. And so that is one. Now, I think Alabama's – they're going to be good this year. You know, Are they going to be Alabama, Alabama good? I don't know, but they're going to be a good team this year. Uh, so I wouldn't you know, really worry too much about coaching changes and all that kind of stuff with them or, or, or anything where they're going to have you know, a really bad season where people start questioning you know, as, as Nick Saban lost it. Um, I mean, I'm sure there will be plenty of people who would say that if they did have a bad season, but I wouldn't anticipate it. I think this is more of do you really need to leave home if USC shows that they can turn this defense around and the cornerbacks have the kind of year really they had last year just in terms of um, the, the development and the turnovers. Um, I think, you know, with Makai Blackman in his season, you know, if you have better overall success defensively, but you have those type of playmaking highlights on defense, I, I think that will go a long ways with some of these kids who, again, are probably more apt to be at USC unofficially this year to watch some of these games than they were last year. Dakota Fields, I think it goes without saying, he committed to USC. You know, there are reasons why he committed to USC. Now he's flipped back to Oregon, which is truly, to be accurate, once again, kind of flipped from Oregon to USC and now back to Oregon again. So we'll see, you know, with the good season. Uh, and Oregon is another one of those schools where you kind of wonder, like, what kind of year they're really going to have. USC gets to play them at Oregon. You can win that one on the field if you're USC. You can go out there and show Dakota Fields why he should be a Trojan and why the USC football program is at the right trajectory and the Oregon program is in the opposite trajectory. Dylan Williams, same thing. Once upon a time, a USC commitment. And then he took an unofficial visit to Oregon and it was like, bloop, you know, don't want anything to do with USC anymore. Very, very strange recruitment. Uh, one that you would have to imagine was NIL based to some extent. Haven't really heard a lot of that with him particularly, um, but that was one of the strangest decommitments ever. I mean, it was one of the most abrupt out of the blue. I'm posting about USC on Instagram every day to, yeah, I'm decommitting and I'm not going to have USC in my top seven. Kind of random, but potentially a guy that maybe you could get on campus for an unofficial visit, et cetera. And again, I think if USC's got one of those seasons going, it's going to be more impactful locally. And so that's really where they're going to have to drive it home. You're not going to go into Texas and start stirring up trouble with guys that are committed to Texas and Texas A&M necessarily uh, just because you're having a good year. That's not going to happen unless those teams have bad years and those kids start looking around going, do I really want to get into this dumpster fire? Um, and that brings us to our next player, <laughs> Draylon Miller, four-star wide receiver out of Silsby, Texas. Down there, just not too far away from uh, Texas A&M, and took his unofficial visit to College Station. Still has yet to take an official visit to College Station, uh, which is notable. But a guy that was very much uh, interested in USC, one that NIL was a big factor in his recruitment. And that is the asterisk with this particular recruitment because we just don't know how locked in that makes recruits with some guys it's locked them in with other guys those deals don't completely come to fruition or something happens and they end up decommitting and certainly if those schools are not playing well it makes it a lot easier because then there are more questions about the coaching staff and stability etc so 
you know, that's one of those things with the NIL era we were still trying to kind of figure out. Is it going to be more like Francis Malagoa where these guys are locked in and it doesn't matter because, you know, there's all these rumors that, you know, they basically have a deal that is in place now. And that's part of the reason why they commit to said school. Or is it one of those things where that was just, you know, an instance where, you know, he was just sold on Mario Cristobal and it really wasn't NIL. And, you know, there are other guys that, uh, you know, we talked about Jaden Rashada. You know, he was an NIL guy that was going to Miami until he wasn't. And then all of a sudden, you know, Florida got back involved. And then all of a sudden, Florida's uh, NIL deal supposedly fell through. Uh, very, you know, sort of pick, pick what you want. Uh, what that what the overall expectation of those type of recruitments, how they're going to play out. You know, we just there's been a mixed bag thus far. So we kind of have to figure out, you know, what's the majority of situations fall on when the school in question is not playing particularly well. And there's a lot of questions about development to Anthony Smith linebacker uh, admitted that he was silently committed to USC. Um, you know, another guy, the same situation with Texas A&M, you know, is Texas A&M losing games playing like they did last year. It's going to be fun to watch. I'll tell you that much. The questions about Jimbo Fisher and everything, they start to become a little louder and they, they, they definitely can, sort of undermine uh, some of the recruiting efforts. And, uh, you know, we saw even that with the transfers, you know, that USC got away from Texas A&M, kids that were there for, uh, you know, a, a couple months and then decided, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. And uh, they lost a lot of players out of that 2022 class, which was an epic class for them. So we'll see, you know, if that happens again, you know, that's that's definitely going to undermine uh, potentially some of these recruits. And again, this is not a thing that I, I think USC is going to be able to just go win games and Draylon Miller is going to go, wow, and Texas A&M is also winning games. I think there's got to be some erosion uh, closer to home that makes him sort of question where he's going. And then, you know what? I put Peyton Woodyard on here, the four-star safety out of St. John Bosco. We both We've always told, felt that was an option. We always felt like this was an option long-term. 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 Like, doesn't matter really what happens during the summer. Stays committed to Georgia, goes to Ohio State, whatever. He commits to Alabama. You just kind of wonder if that, again, is going to be the end destination for him if USC is hitting on all cylinders and they're able to make a big run uh, at the playoffs this year. You know, so I, I think still potentially a guy that you kind of dangle out there and uh, we'll wait and see. Um, there's obviously not a ton of uncommitted players right now. All the guys that we just spoke of are all committed to other schools, but of the uncommitted list, uh, you got Jason Brown running back out of Oday High School in Seattle. Now, he hasn't talked much with USC uh, recently, really since the beginning of the summer. So I'm not sure where that stands after U- USC loses out on Taylor Tatum. And, and notice Taylor Tatum isn't on that list as a running back. He commits to Oklahoma. I, I guess you could put him on that list because Oklahoma, I mean, they were awful last year and they could probably be awful this year again. <laughs> I don't know really what to expect from Oklahoma as a football program. Uh, but this kind of weird baseball thing, and I don't know. You know, I, I I don't know if Taylor Tatum is that guy. Like, I look at Dakota Fields, I look at Dylan Williams, I look at Draylon Miller, and I say, you know what? Those are guys. Those are guys that you keep pushing for, you keep grinding for, and something just makes me feel like I don't know if Taylor Tatum is necessarily that guy. Um, so I didn't put him on the list, but uh, again, you know, that might be a thing where, you know, if Oklahoma really falters, then, you know, does he start to second guess, uh, 
where his commitment is, or, or does he just look forward to baseball season? I don't know. Um, but so Jason Brown, uh, you know, a, a prospect, a guy that USC recruited pretty hard, but not recently. So we'll see where that goes. Chris Cole, we mentioned him earlier. USC is among his top schools. Chris Cole loves everybody. Every visit is amazing. Uh, he's got some crystal balls to Georgia. If he's a take for Georgia, he'll go to Georgia. Um, if he's not, then that opens things up a little bit. I know Miami was there. Uh, I'd still say USC might be like three or something in that race. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if he gets to his official visit at USC. I mean, that in itself would be a big win to get the official visit right before he makes his recruitment um, commitment. I think that would be pretty big. So we'll see. There's some things that could probably change between now and then for him. Uh, Jalen Harvey, we spoke of already. Edric Houston is going to make a commitment here uh, in uh, a couple weeks, I believe. And, you know, everybody says it's Alabama, uh, Ohio State. Alabama has a lot of juice right now. Uh, I've always heard of Alabama with him, even though he's got some crystal balls with Ohio State. But like I said, Alabama does a good job just laying in the weeds, doing what Alabama does. And um, next thing you know, you know, they've got the number two class in the nation. And so we'll see what happens with him. I haven't really heard a whole lot about he and USC lately. It seemed like after his official visit, USC still seemed like they were a bit of a long shot. Um, NIL will be a factor here uh, to some extent. Um, Elijah Gordon is a guy that USC just offered over the summer, one of the last uh, scholarship offers that they gave to the 2024 class. Um, and an interesting prospect that you would think if they push for him hard, they would get a commitment from, which, you know, earlier when they offered him, there was still a lot to be, uh, revealed to the recruiting class, you know, guys still making decisions that had taken official visits. Um, so this is going to be an interesting one to see if he wants to get it done before the season. If USC is really pushing and he's a take for USC at that point, um, I think, you know, USC leads. I think USC is the team to beat. But again, they've got to make that push for him. Um, we talked about uh, Sione Lialau, uh, who is, um, you know, looking at Oregon, looking at USC. Miami's also a player with him. Um, haven't heard anything from him lately, uh, but we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, Aiden Breland, who will, you know, more than likely commit uh, to a school before he ever gets back on campus at USC. Um, the 6'5", 285-pound defensive tackle from modern day. But one of those guys that could end up popping up at USC for an unofficial visit, and USC might still have an ability to recruit him right before signing day. And then Jericho Johnson, uh, the 6'4", 300-pound defensive tackle uh, from Fairfield, California, up north, uh, who will take an official visit to USC at some point. Um, he's really a West Coast guy. It's really a Washington, USC, Oregon sort of thing right now. He may take some visits elsewhere, and it, and it opens up a bit. Um, he didn't really take uh, any official visits during the summer, um, or at least I, I don't recall. I think maybe he officially visited Washington already, but he hasn't been like nationally going around to all these different schools and everything. And sometimes that in itself just changes the game. You get enough people in your ear and you start believing everything you hear. So he's a guy that uh, will make that decision kind of later in the year, and USC will be involved with as a defensive tackle. So those, it's kind of like the uncommitted group that I threw together, you know, just as we were talking and getting ready to record here of guys that USC is still uh, potentially involved with, with a good season. You know, if this is a season where USC, you know, they're only able to win nine games and they kind of don't meet the expectations, um, which again, were set higher because of that 11 win season last year, then, you know, bets are off and then you don't maybe have that same momentum 
and you're not able to close. And, you know, not to say that there are any guarantees if you win 12 games this year either. I mean, it's it's too hard to really tell, um, you know, with NIL, like how entrenched these commitments are and how things can change. Uh, clearly, if uh, you're not super aggressive in NIL, you can lose commits. And <laughs> we've seen that. Uh, but uh, if everything is all even, you know, how do things play out uh, during the season if USC's uh, winning games and scoring touchdowns and making sacks and they're being talked about as uh, one of the best teams in the country? And and really, that's the big thing is getting there and being at the precipice of getting the college football playoff because date-wise, you know, all of this is kind of figured out before you get to the college football playoffs, before there is a Heisman Trophy Award. All that stuff is after the early signing day. So that's kind of the weird thing about this. It's just, you know, you have to set yourself up for this. It, USC was kind of lucky in some ways that that Sugar Bowl loss was after a bunch of those guys had, uh, you know, come through and signed in the early signing period. You didn't want Cotton that ugly loss. What was that? Cotton Bowl. Cotton Bowl. Sorry. Sugar, what did I say? Sugar Bowl? Sugar, Sugar Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's wearing shorts. He's wearing shorts. The quarterback's wearing shorts. Um, yeah, you didn't <laughs> want to uh, have that loss on you right before signing day. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line, which is dotted. I know a lot of you are probably over-recruiting at this point. Like I said, you just want the season to start. Wrong podcast. Wrong podcast. You pulled up the wrong podcast for that. But I'm just saying that second recruiting season is coming for the fall and winter leading up to December. We'll see who is going to sign on the line, which is dotted. With that, Gerard, we're going to take our break for the show. When we come back, we're going to talk about fall camp and some Big Ten expansion. Are you ready for your break? I am ready for my break. Are you all ready for a break? Yeah, we're ready for a little bit of a mariachi, so we'll be right back after this break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Gerard, I've never told you this, but – well, first off, how 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 was your break? I knew you were going to ask me that. 
I was really interested in this. I've never told you this. I'm, I'm like, gonna finish oh, the thought. I just want to. I just. I just was always your ask you your break. How do you think it was? It was hot and sweaty and 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah, that 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 sounds right. Anyway, I haven't told you this, but when I edit the podcast, I always there's a moment where I can before I like fully set it to bed before uploading. I always like just randomly check spots in the episode just to make sure everything is like clear and good. And I do about five random checks throughout the the podcast. And obviously it's a long podcast. So there's plenty of spots to choose from. But if I hit your voice in all five checks, I call that a hurricane. If I just pick five random spots and it's always you talking, that's called a hurricane. Okay. Then do you do like a chef's kiss and put it up? No, I usually then I schedule it, and the, but that's the final like uh, pre-check before I uh, officially put it in the system to be uploaded. So just a little bit of a behind the scenes about how the uh, the sausage is made. Gerard Fall Camp, we talked a little bit about it. Uh, well, not a little bit, a lot of bit about it. Uh, but specifically, the newcomers uh, for Fall Camp, you were kind of uh, interviewing me about it because you know I am at practice. Actually, I practice tomorrow morning. 8.30 a.m. And we, we do have a, a, a couple more newcomers to talk about as we go into another or wrap up another week of uh, USC fall camp. Next week being the mock game week. And then, lo and behold, week zero, San Jose State is here. The transition of incoming freshmen to newcomers that can contribute are always the most interesting aspect for us in the recruitment universe because these are obviously names, they're database names, they're profile names, they're pictures, they are subplots and stories, people that invest emotionally. And they want to know, are these guys actually going to do anything in a Trojan uniform? So it's where the rubber meets the road. I wanted to hear a little bit about Anthony Lucas. It, I, I have a feeling the peristyle might want to know a little more about what's going on with defensive end, rush end, in fact, Anthony Lucas in fall camp, Chris. I will just want, I'm getting up on my soapbox. I am tired of the Anthony Lucas weight argument, debate, controversy. I know, and, and Jack Sullivan, which I think you're going to be a great player this season for USC. I think you're going to be very important. But he get, went up there and talked, and he mentioned how Anthony Lucas was 290 pounds, and he's down to 250 pounds. And obviously, people saw that and just flipped out. Now, I don't know why he said he was 290 pounds. I talked to Anthony Lucas in the, the spring when he just you know signed with USC and he was just getting started before spring camp, and he told me he was – 270 pounds he, and he I think he even said 265 at that time and he said it's pretty much what he played at at Texas A&M so he's listed at 295 and we've been over this he was never 295 he was never 290 and unless Anthony Lucas was lying to me which I don't believe why he would lie to me about you know his weight because he doesn't look 290 when I saw him he's a big muscular dude but he doesn't look 10 pounds less than or 15 pounds less than a bear Alexander or a Keon bars who was also listed at kind of 295 290 300 range so 
yeah, the whole weight, the weight gate for Anthony Lucas is just, uh, it's something we're going to have to deal with uh, for a couple weeks until it dies down again. But he was never 290, and I don't want to, you know, you can criticize Grinch for a lot of things, but this is not one of them. He was not 290. He made him drop 50 pounds. But it is interesting that he said he was 250 pounds. Well, yeah, is that accurate? I mean, I wasn't in that conversation. He looks, he does look a little bit, leaner than what I remember him being in spring camp. So I would say there's definitely this feeling that he has dropped some weight. I don't know if it's 250 pounds, maybe he's 260, 250 seems, uh, you know, it's giving, it's giving Drake Jackson turned into rush end from, uh, his defensive end to rush end. So it's giving yeah, a little bit of that linebacker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, was, he was listed as a linebacker. I believe it's giving a little bit of that. Cause he does look a little bit leaner, uh, for per se. And he is playing rush end. So maybe they just, I mean, and Roy Manning said on Tuesday that, you know, he's kind of working both spots, but from all we've seen, it's just been Russian in the limited time that we can't see them. So, I feel like that was just some a little bit of coach speak, and he's going to be more Russian right now than anything. But it, it reminds me, it reminds when you said that about uh, him, you know, losing fifty pounds, which he didn't lose fifty pounds, but it reminded me for whatever reason. I remember in high school football, and uh, we were going through summer workouts and hurricane had, talk, hurricane talk. We, we had we had to hit like a certain number of of workouts in order to to get a jersey, you know, to to be on the team. You you had to, um, I think it was like sixteen out of the the summer or what have you like that. So you had two different days which you could work out, um, or excuse me, two different days. You had two different times a a day which you could work out, and it was like Monday, Wednesday, Fridays were weight room, and then up top, and then Tuesdays and Thursdays. We're just on on the field conditioning. And so, uh, you know, some of the guys like that, like their parents wanted to have like a summer and get and get away. Like you had okay. to do two a days. You, you had to do two, two a days. You, you had to get your, your your numbers up. Right. Because you would you would be taking weeks off. And um, I remember when uh, uh, there was a lineman and his brother that were on the team. And he was one of the better linemen that we, we had. And his name was Frank. And um, shout uh, out to Frank. Frank was uh, was going through double days, man, because he 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 was going on this trip to Portugal. He was Portuguese. His family was Portuguese. They were going to Portugal, and so you know it wasn't it wasn't something Lyman really did, you know, very much to do two days. Because I mean, you, it I mean that, those were not those were pretty serious workouts. Like it was um, you know a couple hours in the weight room, and then you'd go up the uh, top for an hour and you'd run gassers. And so um, he's getting all his workouts in and then he goes and he leaves to Portugal. And I remember we were we were meeting and this is like right before the season. And it was at some point kind of towards the end of conditioning. And um, he was talking with his brother and we were all just waiting. And the coaches had not come in yet. The head coach had not come in yet. So we're all kind of talking amongst each other. And he's saying to his brother, he goes, yeah, he goes, shit, man. 
I lost like 50 pounds going to Portugal because we couldn't eat anything. And his brother's like, yeah, I did too. He goes, I lost more weight in Portugal than we did doing two days. And the head coach happened to be right behind him. And oh, no. he just goes, he goes, why, Frank? Why? <laughs> <laughs> He's, and I why, just, Frank? Why? Why? It was like he had been betrayed. <laughs> he was, it was like, why? Why did you lose all that weight? How could you lose all that weight? I don't understand. You're a lineman. We need you to be a certain why, Frank. And it was just, that's all he said. He shook his head With and a single away. tear in his eye. Why, and it's It was one of those sort of funny moments. And it just kind of reminded me of the Paris tale with Anthony Lucas. Like, why, Anthony? Why? why? You were supposed to be our three technique and now you're 250 pounds. Shout out to Frank. Portuguese, the uh, cilantro boys of Europe, as they like to say. <laughs> the Portuguese. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they say, but nevertheless, uh, we'll, we'll yeah, say, we'll it's, round it's, it's definitely going to be a talking point. I mean, it's one of those things. It was a throw of the Lincoln Riley era at Oklahoma and the whole small ball talk with the defense and getting pushed around in playoff games, etc., by running teams. Um, so, yeah, it's just going to it's going to be there, man. I mean, it's. It's one of those things that I, I have to imagine that the coaching staff kind of knows was a criticism coming away from Oklahoma. And when everybody starts talking about good defenses and, and Lincoln Riley, this is sort of like lingering. Um, that's going to be something that uh, he's probably heard in the echo chamber, if you will, of what of what has to be different with this team this year. You know, they've got to be better up front they've got to be bigger up front and there are other players that they've been able to obtain through the transfer portal where they've got some some size you know and certainly it's a lot longer it's it's a taller longer group along the front seven um but uh yeah i mean i think um at the at the very least people looked at anthony lucas as potentially like a five technique and you know somebody that would be there that that you know you could have maybe um Keon Bars and uh, Bear Alexander both playing at the same time in the middle. Um, you know, it would it would it would allow that to happen. That still can happen. It's just there's a gluttony now of talent there at that sort of rush end spot. We talked about that last week. There's like a lot of rush ends now, and it's like, okay, how do you sort that out? You want to spread out your talent in the line and get as many players on the field at the same time as possible, and it does bring back the memories of Drake Jackson playing outside linebacker, which was not a good move. And we kind of called it then and it turned out not to be a great move. And, you know, he's uh, in the NFL now doing good things, playing defensive line instead of linebacker. I just want to go on record. I will not be gaslit by this uh, Anthony Lucas weight story. He was 270 when he came to USC. That is fact. And that's all I have to say on the topic. Even the guys at Texas A&M said they were a little surprised at how lean he was when he was there for spring football, they thought he would be a bit bigger. And he was listed at 270, I think, uh, by Texas A&M. So, yeah, when we saw 290, it was like, whoa, is that really true? And I don't think we believed it. Um, and then we <laughs> confirmed that it wasn't true and he was never 290. I, I don't know if maybe he was 290 in high school and he, and he actually dropped weight. I mean, I talked to Blair. I think Blair, I think the, the, the highest we had him was like 280, maybe 285. But, yeah, I don't know if he's ever been 290 in his entire life. Mm. But another defensive lineman that I did want to kind of shout out and I kind of added to the list was Elijah Hughes because he got some praise from Lincoln Riley on Tuesday. And uh, Jack Sullivan also shouted him out as, you know, a guy who's really raw 
but has just a lot of potential and he's flashing and he's got a nonstop motor. So those are excellent things you want to hear about, you know, Elijah Hughes as a defensive lineman. I thought he was kind of be a Russian. I, I saw him in the kind of the spring, early summer, and he looked more rush end to me, but it looks like he's added more weight. So looks like Elijah Hughes maybe embracing his inner Bubba because he looks he's looking a little more D line than Russian compared to the when I saw him kind of during this the camp session and they were on campus kind of working out with each other. Certainly very explosive player on film. Like he's mm-hmm. got great looking film. He played at a pretty high level there uh in Virginia, uh, but not at a school that I'm really that familiar with. So I, I don't know. You know, they I don't think they were very good. Um but uh, nevertheless his film was was definitely good, very explosive 265 guy that is a little shorter, you know, a little more sawed off, doesn't have the length of an Anthony Lucas. So, you know, with him and Sam Green, kind of similar just profile-wise. So interesting, as you said, you know, when you looked at him originally, you thought, okay, these guys might end up at the same position, but they aren't at the same position at this point in time. With Hughes putting weight on to play inside and then Sam Green kind of losing some weight to play rush in on outside, which, again, I don't know long-term if that's really going to benefit him. It's funny because Green was going to come in and play D-line, and then I feel like Elijah Hughes he, Elijah Hughes told me he was going to start at rush end, so they've certainly – they just flipped uh, where they've started out, which is which I find interesting. You do wonder how much of this is the coaches talking to them and how much is, of this is their decision, and just based on personality – you know, you, you can't ruffle feathers too much right now because kids are like, well, then I'm going to transfer. You know, you don't want to play me at this position. This is my position. And it's like, you know, with with kids, and I remember this going back to like the Allen Bradford days when, you know, USC had Allen Bradford originally on defense. They recruited him to play defense knowing that he was very good running back at Colton High School, but he wanted to play defense. And so they bring him in and he plays like the first week of practice or first three days of practice um, as a safety. If I recall, was it safety or linebacker? I know he played some safety in, in high school, but they put like, they played him on defense and that just wasn't going to work for them. They were like, no, he's not, he's going to give up touchdowns. Like we'd rather have him on offense, just running the ball, you know, um, at most, you know, what are you going to do? Lose yardage. Maybe you fumbled or whatever, but you're not actually giving up a touchdown as it was said to me. And so they flipped him over, but you know, before he really played a lot of tailback, they wanted to put him at fullback, especially in the middle of the season where they lost their three scholarship fullbacks. And he just wasn't having it. He just wasn't doing it. And I mentioned the story, you know, talking to his dad, like, you know, he didn't want to play fullback. He wasn't just want to block for people and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, you could be a millionaire fullback like Najee Davenport, or you can be an unemployed running back. Like, you know, uh, you, you should probably just go with the flow and just do what the coaching staff wants. And he kind of put the brakes on that. And so, you know, it's one of those things where the coaching staff can say, hey, you know, we think that, you know, you would have more of an impact at this position. But ultimately, it's going to be up to that player, you know, if he wants to play that position or not. You know, if he has his own dream and his own thing in the back of his head uh, where he can play, then he's just going to have to play out his career at that position. And maybe it works out for him. Maybe it doesn't. Is there anyone else you kind of want to talk about? Well, we got to have a Bear Alexander update, don't we? Like, hold on, what's hold going on. on with Bear? Where is he? What's he doing? <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, better have my honey. Oh, <laughs> bear puns. I like those. 
Sorry, I, I just haven't had to use those in a long time, so I just wanted to kind of uh, throw those out there. All of them quick. at once. So, yeah. What do you want to know about Bear Alexander? Because there's not much. How much does he weigh? Uh, I think, right? Isn't that the most important? I don't think he's uh, bring a scale out there? with his uh, weight, but he looks like he's firmly at 300, 305 kind of, uh, kind of range. The most interesting thing is he did talk for the first time after our practice on Tuesday. And he did say that Lincoln Riley and Kirby Smart are alike and that the physicality at USC is the same as it was in Georgia. So those were obviously his two commanding headlines from his uh, session on Tuesday. My question to you following that question is, do you believe him? Uh, I would certainly believe him in the sense that Lincoln Riley is a A1 tier one coach like a Kirby no, Smart. No, I mean the latter. <laughs> Are the, the practice practices as physical as that? Here, here's here's the thing: we can't see all of the practice, obviously, and we have heard that sentiment before. Famously, you're going to love this, Gerard. Ishmael Shopser recently said or said that they were said something similar to that effect. You know, coming from Alabama, which is our, which is kind of a, a little bit funny because he. Could Did not practice, practice <laughs> so, a yeah. lot. So the practices were the same. Looking at them from the sidelines, where all the injured players were sitting on the training table. Yeah. So in that regard, I don't think it's the same. I do think I do think USC's physicality and practice are like hundredfold improved. Is it the same as Georgia? Maybe, but I w- I would venture to say that it's definitely like if a like if USC fans watched the practice and saw practice, I I would I would say that they would be very pleased about the physicality that was going on in practice. Is it the same as Georgia? I don't know. I've never seen a Georgia practice, but I assume as a two-time defending national champion that it's pretty – they get after it. And I think USC gets after as well. Is it the same level? I cannot say that fully. But I, I'm more inclined to believe him than I would say Ishmael Shopshire, uh three years ago or wherever in the – like he was here. Enough said. What about Mr. Kate Eldridge, the former three-star? He does exist. Washington. And well, I just we know wanna... he exists. And we know that he was a former running back at 6'4", 235 pounds at a small school, Linfield Christian up in Washington. But a guy that, because you're going to put Deuce Robinson over with the receivers, has more time to maybe get more reps. And all of a sudden you start to look at that tight end position and you go, okay, all right, you got Jude Wolf and he's coming off an injury. Uh, you've got, um, who else? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you don't have a lot of uh, a depth at, at that position anymore. You know, Lake McCree, we'll see what happens with Carson Tabarucci, AKA Tabarachi. Um, Abo. Uh, but, that, but, but that's, you know, there, you get an injury there and all of a sudden you're looking over at Kate Eldridge going, are you, are you ready? Can you play? Um, how, how's he looking in terms of, uh, I don't know. I, I guess just, you know, how let me, let me just, let me just talk about this wild theory that I had that okay. I, 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 I was giving him the Marion Peterson, uh, uh, what is the word? Marion Peterson. Props? What is No, not props. Uh, treatment? Because okay. I didn't know if he was real. I didn't know he was real. And no, he, but he, I mean, he didn't talk a lot during the recruiting process, but 
Marion Peterson commit. That, 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 and that's fair. And there are commits from Texas on campus that didn't even know about it and have never met him and didn't know who he was. But that was why Marion Peterson was a, is this real? Okay, let me defend myself. Let me defend myself. Yes. Yes. Marion Peterson was next to impossible to get a hold of. Kate Elders, not, not the case, but when they release the the uh, the roster for the fall camp, Kate Eldridge was the like the only player, you know, besides maybe a, a walk on that did not have a photo, did not have a photo. And that's weird, Gerard. That's really weird. Why would a scholarship freshman not have a photo? Then I went back and checked it a couple weeks later and he does have a photo, but except it's like a official visit photo, you know, like when they take the official visits. And they're <laughs> in the pair stuff. That day, I, guess, I, right? I don't know. I don't know when it's 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 driving me crazy that I have to get to the bottom. This is my this is my That's water a question game. for Zach get... Hansen. That is a great question. I, for is Zach it Hansen. a question? And for you know Zach what? Is and I know what the answer. Tell me why he doesn't have a photo. Is that <laughs> really a question? The answer is going to. I can tell you what the answer. The answer is going to be. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what it's going to be. But yeah, Kate Eldridge. You know, I think he's listed at six foot five, and I think he was listed at like six foot five and a half. Or maybe it's six foot four and a half. I think it was six foot four and a half. Six but he's listed at six foot five, I think, on his official roster. That does not have his picture. That does not have a picture of his face. But he's there. He exists. He comes out every day pretty much with Zach Hansen on his hip, 88. I would say he looks closer to six foot four than he does to six foot uh, five. You know, if he, if you're going out six foot four and a half, I would say you round down to six foot four as opposed to six foot five. But he's a big dude. And I made a note of made note of this in my ghost notes. I I'm sure there are plenty of kids who played in that uh that league up in Washington that still have nightmares about tackling. That's Kate what Eldridge. I was gonna ask. It's funny that you that you you segued into that because I was like six four, two hundred thirty five pounds, let's say, and he's playing running back. I mean, I remember playing against Chris Claiborne in high school and he played running back, and it was just like that's not even fair. That's yeah. dumb. That's just like what. Coach, what do you want me to do? Yeah, like we're going to swarm tackle him. Obviously, you got to get him before he gets started. That's yes. the, that's always yes. what you hear. Like, okay, we need penetration in this game. We need to get this guy moving sideways and not allow him to get downhill. But, yeah, I mean, he was a good receiver. He's an interesting prospect because I think he fits USC so well. I've always said, you know, recruiting, you can look at it in a vacuum. You, you can look at it as – okay, this is this player, this is how big he is, this is how fast he is. Uh, but stylistically, it's like he commits to one school over the other. You know, he could be a better prospect in this in this, in this this system. You know, all of a sudden he gets a boost. He levels up in this system because of his abilities that are unique as opposed to just, you know, generally looking at colleges. And I think with Kate Eldridge, he's one of those players that has that ability – that you know USC uses that H back position. Uh, they move their tight, around, tight ends around a lot. Having a guy that has that height, that length, that size, but also a good receiver and can potentially actually just you know get a handoff here and there, just as a weird wrinkle that you could put back there. Um, a good lead blocker, which that's going to be the thing he has to learn the most is, is is lead blocking because he was a running back and he was kind of the I think the running back for their team. So. He's not. He's used to getting the ball. Not used yeah. to actually being the guy in front of the guy with the ball, and so that's something that he's going to have to get used to. 
but nevertheless, yeah, a very interesting, unique athlete that, uh, I, again, you know, one of those things you take deuce out of the picture, you know, obviously with, um, with Walker Lyons, you know, he's not going to be on campus until next year. Um, Carson Tabarachi has been hurt. You know, he didn't participate in the spring game. Um, Luke McCray has been banged up here and there. He was, you know, kind of probably the best uh, tight end for USC last year. Did you like, say Luke McCray? Lake, Lake McCray. Lake McCree. Lake McCree. Luke McCray. <laughs> Sounds good. I don't know who Luke McCray is. It's no Joey Ocean, but Sounds Lake like McCree. some country singer. Hey, uh, wait, Lake, look, think about that. Lake McCree, Joey Ocean, two bodies of water at tight end. I'm, but I'm Joey still this. got another year, as does Walter sure. Matthews. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, you know, it was one of those things, just taking a glance, I was like, yeah, you got a couple guys there that have been injured, you know, that have, that have battled some injuries. And, and even, like I said, Lake was kind of up and down. I, I think overall, if you look at last year, he was probably the most consistent tight end that they had. But, you know, they kind of used him for a stretch, and all of a sudden he disappeared. And then he was kind of hurt, and then he kind of came back in, and then he, you know, really didn't do as much. So, you know, a guy like Kate Eldridge who would kind of sleep on with, with all the big names like Deuce Robinson. And, you know, at that point, is that where you usher in the Deuce Robinson <laughs> era at tight end, you know, and you start to play more? Why? Uh, because, you know, you have injuries or what have you. Or, yeah, did you give the keys over to Kate Eldridge and, and um, have him play more? So that's uh, that. But listen, that's why you need depth. At all these positions, mm-hmm. you know, you can't sit there and look at the frontline players and go, oh, man, we're going to be great this year because, gosh, I just talked about it. You know, USC once upon a time had three scholarship fullbacks, folks, fullbacks. You usually don't have three scholarship fullbacks, and they all went down. That was a year where you had Bra- uh, Brandon Hancock. You had uh, Stanley Havili, who was a freshman, go down, and you had uh, Ryan Padrell uh, from Mission Viejo who moved over from linebacker who ended up looking like he was going to be a really good fullback. He goes down all season ending injuries for all of them. You ended up having to have Mike Brittingham as a walk on at 195 playing fullback for USC that year. Oh, by the way, you have this whole influx of uh, freshman running backs because Reggie Bush just graduated. USC was still able to almost get to a national championship game that year. That was wild. If they have one of those fullbacks healthy, if you have Brandon Hancock, if you have Ryan Padrell, even if you have Stanley Avili, I think by the end of the year, probably beat UCLA and you get to the national championship game. And one more player just to mention, Zion Branch, redshirt freshman, obviously did not play last season, but was impressive in the scrimmage over the weekend. Gerard had a pick six, had a forced fumble, and was one of the standout or maybe the standout player for the defense for Lincoln Riley. So Zion Branch, who obviously doesn't have any college experience, but we know is a supremely talented safety. And I felt, you know, maybe he would have been you know, in the rotation at least, maybe even a starter by the end of the year last season once, you know, he kind of shook off that freshman, that freshman uh, cloak, that freshman juju, and started to, the game started to slow down for him. But Zion Branch, you know, kind of my dark horse to kind of win a starting job. But I think long-term, Zion Branch will find himself in the starting lineup at some point. He continues to play like he did on Saturday. So Zion Branch looks like he's uh, overcoming that knee injury in a big way. Yeah, the question is, whose spot does he take and how much confidence are they going to have in him? You know, you got Bryson Shaw who kind of came on at the end of the season last year, uh, who I think, you know, if you're talking about upside, obviously Zion Branch has got the upside there. You know, Jalen Smith is an interesting prospect that got hurt and then we didn't really see him during the rest of the year. Max Williams is there sort of that nickel safety. Um, that's 
the, the group that has the really the most experience with playing and Zion's going to have to jump one of those guys. I think it would probably be Bryson Shaw because you're probably not going to jump Kalen Bullock. Let's just be honest. No, I think, I think the, 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 the popular belief is that he can take that, what it, they're calling the free safety spot because Kalen plays the strong safety spot in that defense. Take that from Bryson or possibly Max and kind of be that second safety next to Kalen. Which is weird terminology. Yeah, I don't, goes I don't back know. To the terminology when they were calling the Mike linebacker an outside linebacker. I can't remember who we were talking to and, and if that was whose defense that was. I don't think it was Todd Orlando's. I think it might have. No, it wasn't Justin Wilcox either. Can't remember. Maybe it was Todd Orlando's defense and it was some weird thing where they were calling the Mike linebacker an outside linebacker. And I was like, are you guys just doing this, trying to confuse the media? So you think you're confusing other teams? I think you're confusing yourselves. But strong safety, yeah. Uh, free safety, free is usually single uh, single high, um, you know, up in the middle of the field, free to kind of, you know, basically go side to the sideline. Strong is going to come down and be in run support more. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say Kalen Bullock is really the free safety. And uh, Bryson Shaw is probably strong safety along with Jalen Smith. Jalen, though, is really – in my eyes, at the end of last season, Jalen, if he's healthy, is competing more for reps against Max Williams. Um, they were on the field at the same time at certain times, but I think now that's probably more what you're going to get. Because uh, Jalen is definitely, physicality-wise, the most physical of that group. Well, I mean, really, if we're being honest, Max Williams is the most physical of that group. Unfortunately, he's 5'8", you know, but in terms of the guy that's going to go out there and form tackle somebody the best, it's probably going to be Max Williams. Um, but in terms of size and physicality and sort of like the whole package, um, as a as a as a strong safety or as a nickel, because a nickel, seeing where you line up, you are going to always be kind of near the line of scrimmage over the slot. That tends to be a very physical position as well. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting just to see how they use all these players. Have we figured out yet what they're going to do with Eric Gentry? Is he still playing Mike linebacker, or is he playing more outside, or is that a state secret still? I think it's a state secret and Odom has said, you know, pretty much the two positions can kind of flip. They're kind of, they're kind of interchangeable. So yeah, but we've seen Gentry and Mason Cobb working together in, in the middle for the first team. So, you know, on paper, it's kind of just setting up for them to kind of be your two starting middle linebackers for the 2023 season. Cause Shane Lee is banged up. He's missed a couple practices. And uh, Rajon Davis has also been banged up. He's he's injured with a hand injury per Lincoln Riley. So the and which is good in terms of, you know, the linebacker death having more depth linebacker room, having more depth this year. And yeah, also so, the attack at Curtis, some more yep. potential run, you know, like an excuse just to get him out there a little more and, you know, get more reps um, than he maybe did during the spring. And you would think that Tackett is potentially, you know, if he's able to have that light bulb go off, going to be a bigger impact player for USC than, than Shane Lee. Um, I don't know about Rashawn Davis because he's still, I think, learning off the line of scrimmage and is a guy with a ton of talent. You know, that's one of those guys we talked about last year, uh, or excuse me, um, last week, the players that you sort of want to be, you want to have as breakout players if you're a USC fan, um, as opposed to just, you know, predicting a guy that's going to have a breakout year. And I think Rajon Davis is definitely one of those guys, like from a development standpoint, if he's able to get on the field and make some plays and do some things, it's like, okay, yeah, all right. We're, we're developing the guys that are good players, 
you know, not just going, oh, no, no, they were, um, uh, <laughs> they were busts. Uh, yeah, they weren't really like, just Clay Helton guys. They don't know what they're doing scouting-wise. There's some guys that you see, you go, okay. You know, they, even there in the Pete Carroll era, you know, you could see there were players that were good players that just weren't seeing the field or players that were doing well in practice and just weren't able to put it together to get on the field. And you're like, these guys are talented. They've got to figure out a way to get something out of them, to get some type of contribution. And if it's not happening, I think that's falling more on the coaching staff than those players. And it's easy to say, well, we're just going to recruit somebody else. Like, yeah, he's our, he's our second team receiver or he's our second team cornerback. No big deal. And it's like, no, I mean, if you go back to the, the beginning years of the peak era era, those were the guys that they were winning championships with. Those were the guys that they were coaching up and they had depth because you're going to have injuries. You're going to have guys that just, you know, for whatever reason, aren't able to play the whole season. And you are going to have to have uh, players in that second team and maybe even that third team that are guys that are at least going to be able to be consistent for you. You know, you're not necessarily looking for big play after big play, but you're looking for guys that there's not just huge drop off. And of course, they're still dealing, I think, with some drop off at certain positions. That's pretty significant from a talent standpoint. Right. You know, like there are some first team guys you're like, OK, I mean, I think you can look at their defensive line right now and you kind of look at guys like Keon Bars and you look at Anthony Lucas and you look at Barry Alexander. You're like, OK, that's a good looking team. Like you could throw those guys out there if you want to put like a starting, you know, three or four out there of those guys. You know, that's a that's a decent looking team. That's a much bigger team, certainly. Uh, than USC's had in years. But then it's like, okay, what's the drop-off talent-wise behind that? You know, you're going to have Tyrone Telene, who played okay last year. He probably played better um, from from when he got a a good foothold into the starting lineup to the end of the season, maybe than any other interior defensive lineman. But still, that's not a guy that you're going to see in the SEC on the second team, right? You're not going to probably see Stanley Tafu on you know Alabama's second team D line or Georgia's second team D line or Clemson's second team D line or Florida's second team D line, right? There's a a, a bit of a drop off there. Um, at rush end, you know, we talked about the depth that there's not that 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 drop off anymore, right? You don't have that as much. I mean, you've got Jamil Muhammad. You know, where does he play? But he's a guy that's a good looking player. Uh, Romello Height, we'll see injury wise, another guy, but you know, a, a decent looking player out of the gates. And now you've got some depth from some freshmen like a David Peavy when he's healthy, but you know, Braylon Shelby, who was like, you, I mean, you kind of kind of figure out like, how do you that's why you wonder. I mean, does Anthony Lucas need to mess around at rush end? Because you've got Braylon Shelby. I want to see Braylon Shelby get reps. I, I need I need to see Braylon Shelby get reps. If I'm a coach, if I'm Roy Manning, I'm like, I need. I need to get this. Maybe it's trial by fire, but you need to get that guy involved. Sort of, you know, that that's just my opinion. But I feel like you don't need to be wasting any time with him on the sideline. I know he's learning everything, but man, get that guy in the field as much as possible. Flip side at strong side, you've got now Solomon Bird has moved over there. So that that helps. You get a little improvement. You're losing um oh gosh, blanking on the name. Um uh, who is the, the uh, they just lost the kid, the JC kid at defensive end that played a bit that I thought should play more and kind of was like used here and there. Uh, why am I blinking on his name? Um, I am not helping me failing you, but I'll just fill the, I'll, 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 I'll do something to just like stall. Have you yeah. made your decision for Christ? 
I don't know why I'm, 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 it shows you how quickly like I like out with the old and with the new when it comes to, you know, like the players and you're talking about last year. Yeah. I'm talking about last season. Figueroa. Uh, yeah. Figueroa, Nick Figueroa. I just <laughs> could, I, cause you know, I'm thinking Jack Sullivan. I was like, I know. is he not remembering Nick? I did. I know. I know. I know. I totally <laughs> forgot about him for some reason. Uh, his name. I'm sitting there looking at him. I'm going, yes, I, I know, but I could not remember his name. But anyways, um, he he was. Yes, that's a, that was a very talented player that unfortunately got caught up in a couple different systems at USC and just I don't know, man. He he was like in this rotation and it seemed like, dude, he kind of seems to make plays every time he's on the field. Well, you lose him, but you get Jack Sullivan, right? So you got Jack Sullivan there. Um, Solomon Tule Pupupu, maybe he's able to kind of make a, a little bit more of a dent now, um, playing that strong side for a second year. Um, he's a guy that, you know, his dad had kind of talked to me. Maybe, maybe he ends up playing inside a little bit. I don't think that's necessarily happened yet. Um, but the, but there's some room there, in my opinion, on the strong side, right? You know, Corey Foreman moves over there. Um, don't know what he's weighing these days, you know, maybe 235. <laughs> but, but it's one of those things where, I mean, I see some playing time for Anthony Lucas over there at 270 pounds. Like, go give my boy Braylon Shelby some reps. We got a lot of DNs here, rush ends. You know, we got yeah, we got to get Jamil Muhammad out there. He's a good looking player. Like, let's spread the wealth. So yeah, that again goes back to the Anthony Lucas talk. It's gonna always circle back to Anthony Lucas, right? All right, Gerard. Let's hit our final topic before listener questions, and that is. Kind of flip from what we talked about in our final topic last episode, which was the potential college expansion, Big Ten expansion, and everything. All hell broke loose in the in the week preceding our podcast episode. We we picked some teams that we thought could be fits for the Big Ten, and they ended up picking their own teams, which was Oregon and Washington. Neither of us picked Oregon, by the way. I did pick Washington. I don't remember if you picked Washington, Gerard. Did you pick? The Huskies? I did. Yes. You I did thought Stanford so we both? should be in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I was like Stanford, um, Stanford, Washington, Miami, and Notre Dame, I think. Was that the four that we were, we were picking for? Yes. I think yeah, we both picked Notre was, Dame, Washington. Uh, that wasn't really no, – but that wasn't uh, – were we speaking in terms of predictions? I, don't, I wasn't – No, 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 no. We were just – We were just yeah, – In terms of – around. What, which, on this podcast. What, I, I, that was more of who say they should go after, in my opinion. It was those those schools. That's to me, that's furthering the brand. You're going after schools that actually give you something, either from a TV market standpoint or recruiting territory standpoint. I didn't think Oregon did either. I don't think they still they don't do either. They give you Nike is what they give you and Nike money. And that's probably why they're a part of the Big Ten. But um, nevertheless, yeah, that that was um, my my perspective was you want to go after uh, schools that increase your your footprint in those those categories, first and foremost. And then, you know, considering academics as well, because the Big Ten has been, um, you know, they've, they've made that known that they want to maintain certain academic standards, you know, to, to whatever level. And so. Um, but that's obviously, you know, can be debated in terms of some of the schools that are already in the Big Ten and whether, you know, they're at that level academically and back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. So on Friday, last Friday, the Big Ten chancellors, counselors, whatever you want to call them, voted <laughs> the yes. chancellors. Not counselors, not the counselor. I don't think uh, your, 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 your major counselor, you're going to go to and talk to them about, we're going to go to the Big Ten or not 
or should I take history 101? They uh, they voted to invite Oregon and Washington in, and not to be outdone, the Big 12 poached Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah for the Big 12. So now we are left with the Pac-4. The Pac-12 is dead. I mean, the whole pack is essentially dead. But all that remains is Washington State, Oregon State, Stanford, and Cal. But there's been talk of maybe the ACC making a move for Stanford and Cal. So, you know, this might not be over yet. But, Gerard, a lot has happened, you know, mainly with the Big Ten additions of Oregon and Washington, which affects USC, which, you know, they're now a little maybe a potential little West Coast pod going on. And the impact of recruiting. And, you know, we mentioned it with at the top with Dakota Fields. This is the only thing that kind of changed with his recruitment is that Oregon has now moved to the Big Ten, which was an inherent advantage that USC had over every school in the Pac-12 and especially Oregon and kind of Washington. They were going to be playing in a big boy conference. Pac-9, Pac Pac-4, whatever, was not a big boy conference. Now Oregon gets to be in a Pac big boy conference, albeit with a half share. They're coming in with a discounted share, not a full share like USC and UCLA. So there is a little bit of a still an inherent money advantage for USC. But obviously it's a Nike school. Phil Knight, I'm sure they will make that up. But Oregon is now in the big 12, 10, not 12. <laughs> even though it's like, even though even though it's the Big 18, I guess right now. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to change that name. Just, I mean, they kind of even now just call it the Big Conference a lot. You know, I mean, the emblem is the logo is just big, uh, the one G. Yes, yes, I'm looking but at the logo right now. Nevertheless, it's interesting to see the movement and. You know, the one big thing, and this was mentioned on the Peristyle, and I can't remember who posted it, but it was when the talk was, well, we just bring in Oregon, Washington, Cal, and Stanford. It's like, so what are you just trying to recreate the Pac-12 in the Big Ten? <laughs> like, you kind of, there's a reason why you want to get away and get to a new conference, because the leadership is different. The emphasis on sports is different, and certainly the emphasis on football is different. And you don't want to just drag a bunch of people into the conference that got uh, the Pac-12 to where it was, right? You can blame Larry Scott, and he shares plenty of the blame, but so do the university presidents and the boosters and some of these people involved with the football programs. You know, they're the ones that did not invest and did not take football seriously enough uh, across the board, and they wanted to have this sort of one – uh, one for all, you know, the 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 tide rises all boats sort of socialist philosophy when it came to running the conference and it completely tanked the conference. And so you want to get away from that mentality. You want to cut ties with that mentality. And that's really like we're, you know, programs like Cal specifically, we talked about this last week when talking about what well, would you bring Cal in? I just feel like with Cal pulled with UCLA, hell no you don't bring them in. I just think that they wrote, they, they, they put their cards on the table with that. You know, that was what um, they were feeling and, and, and their overall philosophy when it came to football was crabs in a bucket and UCLA was getting out of the bucket 
And if you ever have crabs in the bucket, you know, they'll never get out of the bucket, even though they could very easily just, you know, like ants get on top of each other, get right out of the bucket, help pull themselves out of the bucket. They will always pull themselves down. As one crab gets near the top, another crab will go grab for it and try to climb over it and pull it down. And that is the mentality of uh, Cal football. When you and, look at and the, Trivino Tech, and our tri- defense. And, evidently Trivino Tech, which why they will never be in the Big Ten Conference. Our defense, uh, not our oh, administration. Oh, oh, or ac- academically. We'll pull you down in the backfield. Okay. Uh, I'll say, uh, what were we talking about now? Um, but anyways, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, from a recruiting impact, going back to what we were talking about at the top of the podcast, which seems so many hours ago, um, yeah, I, wonder I don't think it had a huge impact on, on Dakota Fields. I'm sure somebody made a call. I'm sure that there were guys that were committed to Oregon, like, let's go, baby. Come on, Dakota. You know you want to be in the Big Ten. You know, I'm sure there was that conversation that happened. I just don't know that that was, like, very persuasive in the grand scheme of things of why he decided to to go to Oregon. Uh, or, or that was something that was keeping him from committing to Oregon in the first place. He didn't actually bring that up uh, in any of the conversations I had with him. There have been recruits that have talked about you know, being on their visit and talking about going to the Big Ten and how excited they were, and that's going to be really cool for USC, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he wasn't one of those guys that really mentioned it to be a big deal for him. So, yeah, I, I can't say it would be a big deal vice versa uh, for Oregon going in. Um, I think it was just, you know, maybe part of, like, they're trying to build momentum, and Oregon was like, hey, you know, like, we really want you to become part of the team and blah, 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 and it just maybe just all kind of came together for it to be timing wise uh his announcement you know then in there Lincoln Riley was asked about this on Friday was obviously the news broke that day and he kind of said look and this was actually he sorry excuse me he wasn't asked about it. this was his opening statement for his scrum is that hey this decision our decision to go to the Big Ten had nothing to do with anyone else this was what our leaders and academic and academics and athletics were determined was the best move for our university and our athletic programs and so such and such. So that decision was made with USC in mind and only USC. And he said, my reaction is I have no reaction. We are worried about winning the Pac-12 and we will focus on the Big Ten when we get there next season. So didn't really say anything about anyone else but that just focus on themselves, the Trojans. But this is something that a lot of USC fans are upset about because they don't get to hold this over Oregon and to that effect, Washington as well, but mainly Oregon, which has been a a thorn in their side for, for quite some time on the recruiting trail. Now, one of their recruiting advantages is now kind of gone in that sense. And now they both get to recruit with the Big Ten in mind. Yeah, I, I think the feeling for Trojan fans is that Oregon is a Lamprey program and they are kind of sucking at the exposure they get to play against USC, the exposure they get from playing Ohio State, and then trying to use Nike to get into those recruiting territories and get talent away from those schools, whereas there's virtually no talent in Eugene, Oregon. I mean, there's not a lot of players in Oregon as a state in general so that's not somewhere that any of those programs, they don't benefit 
from beating Oregon. It's not like you're going like, oh, well, we get to go into Portland now and pillage Portland. There's really not a lot of talent there. And on the other side of things, when you're talking about TV markets, Oregon doesn't offer anything <laughs> in regards to that as well. You know, again, it's it's Eugene isn't even Portland for that matter. But even if you're going to say it's Portland, it's still not the biggest TV market in the world. So, again, the questions were always what does Oregon really bring to the table for these other schools, for the Big Ten Conference? You know, let's take USC out of the equation, take UCLA out of the equation. Just, you know, what does it what does Oregon bring to the table for the schools that are already in the Big Ten, Ohio State, Michigan, et cetera? And the, the answer is not a whole lot outside of the potential sponsorship and endorsement deals that Nike may have uh, with the conference because of relationships through Oregon, which I think is a bit of a reach. I think if you think, oh, Nike's going to do something more for Big Ten players than they're going to do for SEC players who are all going to the NFL uh, because, oh, you're cool and you let Oregon be a part of the group, I think is is a bit naive. I think Nike is going to do Nike, and they're going to sponsor, and they're going to endorse whoever they think is going to wear their emblem and succeed and do well, and they can you know link themselves to that success. If you know, the, Unless there was some side deal made under the table – that, you know, Nike is going to give the Big Ten just a bunch of money, you know, as, as like the official partner or something. And, and, and there could be something like that involved with this. I, I have to think that Phil Knight and Nike absolutely got on the phone and made a bunch of phone calls to the Big Ten commissioner and to some of these universities. And, you know, I don't know. I wish I was a fly on the wall to hear how those conversations went and whether this was Nike making threats or this was Nike saying, listen, we can sweeten the pot and we can do some things for all your facilities and we can supplement the conference and be like the conference's apparel representative, you know, something above and beyond. Cause again, Nike, they got their fingers on a lot of pies. You know, people don't realize that Nike's also given millions of dollars to USC. Now they've given tens of million dollars more, hundreds of millions of dollars more probably to Oregon than they have USC, but they've given millions of dollars to USC. In fact, they gave money for the McKay Center. Um, so, and I say Nike, I think it was Phil Knight specifically that gave money to USC's McKay Center. So they, they know, like a, even like a good politician, how to keep their bread buttered on all sides. You know, they're, they're, they they kind of, it's one of those things you, you're never going to lose if you kind of have your bets placed on all sides. And that's kind of what they do. So, I think it's a little naive, like the Big Ten's going to get some kind of special treatment or something. And um, again, we'll see what the relationship is with Nike and the brand and Oregon, um, you know, 10 years from now. You know, how, how does that look? Is it, is it still the same? Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of money given to them from an endowment standpoint um, by Phil Knight. So maybe they're able to skate on that for a while. But I, I do yeah, question with Trojan fans. I, I think it's a legitimate question. What do they bring to the table? Not academics, um, not location, you know, multiple kind of jerseys. It's, it's Nike still. Like, uh, you know, th- that whole aspect of everything, it's it's still really, it's all pushed and made possible because of Nike. You know, if I think Nike wasn't such a big part of Oregon football, Oregon would be no better off than Oregon State. It, it'd be a very similar program. I, I just, you know. 
And so, yeah, you kind of shrug your shoulders and go, okay, I, I guess so. I mean, and and Lincoln Riley's response doesn't necessarily give you the sense like they're really excited about it, like they're really pushing for it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like, oh God, we need we need this West Pod, you know, like <laughs> they were they were really worried about that, you know. We gosh, well, my, we can't travel so much. We I sure hope the Big Ten invites uh, you know, Washington and Oregon, or we're gonna, you know, that those are long trips for USC as well. So yeah, I don't know. I, I it's it's a it's an absolute win for Oregon in, in recruiting for everything. They gain so much more than any other program from that move to the Big Ten than any other program in the Big Ten. <laughs> Gerard, is there anything else you want to touch on here before we kind of move into our listener questions? Well, what's your take on oh. that uh, in terms of uh, Oregon and Washington and what? the conference gets from adding them in uh, with both schools. And then, you know, what do the individual schools get from it? You know, like again, okay, let's say you're Chris Trevino, you graduated from Trevino tech, uh, the school that you also founded at the same time. Um, do you now, now you're the commissioner of the big 10. Do you see that as other than geography? Like what, what, what do you think the big 10 gains from adding those schools specifically over, let's say, and we know they're going after Notre Dame, right? So it's not like instead of Notre Dame, let's not be silly. I mean, it's not like, oh, they went and got Oregon because they couldn't get Notre Dame. I don't think that's what happened. I think take Notre Dame all day long, you know? Um, but, you know, going that way in, in, instead of maybe some other ways, uh, uh, whether it be like Florida State or, or Miami, which, again, still could be on the table. I think they kind of just, uh, the counselors or chancellors, if you will, they kind of just looked at it like, and again, this is my take. They looked at it like, hey, the Pac-9, as we know it, is about to fall off. It's a house on fire. If we're looking at the conference as a house, it's a house on fire. I think we, as Big Ten leaders, should do our best to run into that house and <laughs> grab the most valuable grab the asset <laughs> That we can grab the most valuable asset that we can. And for them, it kind of boiled down to Oregon and Washington because you get two of the same kind of region. So you can kind of bring them in as like the USC UCLA pair, if you will. So you get the you get two not necessarily amazing markets, but you get two you get a bigger footprint out on the West Coast with your your flag in Oregon and your flag now in Washington and you get to relatively good football programs, you know, compared to like what was left in that burning house, you know, Stanford obviously is very desirable from an academic standpoint and always wins the director's cup and most national championships. But from a football sense, they are really poor outside of, you know, you know, going back to the Harbaugh days, they, and, you know, a little bit with David Shaw, but but still kind of not where you want them to be from in terms of a football power or a, a, a team that cares about football. So Oregon obviously definitely cares about football and Washington cares about football. So I think they looked at it like that and they decided, you know, we can grab these two out of this burning house. So let's go ahead and grab those two and get these done and out and, and kind of not waste time in doing so before this thing collapses. See, 
I would argue that Stanford does bring more to the table. Sure. Academically, uh, obviously, which, you know, you've got Northwestern in the conference. But, yeah, I mean, the, the rebuttal there would be, well, you know, the SEC's got Vanderbilt in the conference. Um, but You can only have one is what they're saying. Yeah, right. Uh, we only need one is what they're saying. And, and I agree with you. I think Stanford is more valuable. I, I just think regardless of how you look at their football program, I think they are more valuable. But – it just seems that they took into account football more. Yeah. No. Well. No. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Then we agree. Yeah. Because I think even the Bay Area having that recruiting ground and exposure there yearly for those programs would again be more than going to Eugene, Oregon. You're just not getting any. You're not getting anything out of that, other than you know, you Oregon recruiting LA kids and having you know LA kids at a game for unofficial visits. Um, and then maybe playing Ohio State in Outson Stadium sort of thing, right? So it's almost like by proxy, uh, you're getting recruiting exposure in the Southern California, uh, in California in general. Um, so yeah, it's definitely questionable, um, but you know it it is what it is, and and I think yeah, it's not something that really helps USC at all, if if I'm being honest. Um, but we'll see with the rest of the expansion and, and what happens from it. I mean, you figure USC and Washington and Oregon have to play each other probably every year now. Like that's mm-hmm. going to be a thing because they'll be the West pod. Um, we'll see what happens, you know, um, outside of that. Yeah, the schedule is going to get next year's schedule kind of loses its excitement because you have to redo it now. For no, do you though? I don't know if you, if you, if you do, right. Cause I mean, you're, You've got those games, but was it just – I think it was games with Big Ten opponents, but was it all just Big Ten opponents, but wasn't taking into consideration any other – like I thought there was still room for other games that you would fit in there automatically. It was, it was like assuming – I can't remember off the top of my head. I remember looking at both – It was just straight your – it was just straight your opponents for 2024, your 10 conference games. I don't remember if it's 10 conference games. Okay. Or, so, however, however many. It, it just it's just who you're gonna play in uh, 2024. Because Notre Dame would still be on that schedule, I would assume, for USC. They're yeah, still yeah, gonna yeah. be out of you know out of conference games. You have LSU that year, yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, I'm still. I think I would actually. You know, I think I went five. I think I threw TCU in there as well for Dallas Fort Worth and what it went Washington Stanford TCU Miami. Um, and Notre Dame would have been like, you know, my first kind of group. And, and again, I'm looking at TV markets. I'm looking at talent and I want to get that's that's like if look at you want to be a part of this group. You want to be a part of this little gang here. We got, you know, gang, gang, Big Ten. You better bring uh, some recruits to the table and you bring some some TV eyes to the table first and foremost. You know, I don't want to hear about your alternate pro uh, your, your jerseys and I don't want to hear about, you know, your mascot or your, or yo, you got the biggest stadium. I don't want to hear about any of that. Like I I'm going for, you know, who, who, who helps the program from those two things. And then I'm kind of looking at academics probably as a third um, kind of fourth thing. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the big 10 is, is not, and what, you know, the other part of all this is that, who knows how long this really goes for, you know, how, how long do we, do we have before there becomes an actual league where all of these schools that just can't really, you know, hang like, cause in the big 10, you've got some schools like Purdue and Indiana 
and some other schools that you could argue, eh, Northwestern, maybe you shouldn't be in the Big Ten anymore. You know, like the standard has risen. And just because you were because of a part of the Big Ten, listen, if these L.A. schools are able to travel, then, you know, the schools in the Big Ten, in the Midwest are going to be able to travel. And you don't necessarily need to have Purdue and, uh, and Northwestern and Illinois and some of these other schools in there just because they're in the Midwest. And so. It could it could change a whole lot even more, you know, and we could end up seeing where I don't know if there I don't know if there would ever be one big mega conference like the NFL basically is what I'm saying. Like they would ever get to the point where it's like, OK, we're going to have the best like, say, 50 teams or 45 teams. I don't know if you get it down to 30, but, you know, we're, we're just getting, this is going to be it sort of thing. I don't know if you ever get to that point, because I do think uh, there's some very. I mean, not just, you know, even politically, but economically, just in general philosophies that change, you know, with that Mason Dixon line, there's a bit of a difference in terms of the approach when it comes to football and, and, you know, how much emphasis should be on football, et cetera. And, and I don't know if even in the big 10 at the most feverish football programs like Michigan and Ohio state, they're willing to sacrifice certain things to, 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 to get butts in the seats for football and to win at sports. And so I don't know. I mean, that's, it, it, it almost gives you the sort of more back in the days of the NFL AFL type of deal um, where you had, you know, kind of, you had two professional conferences, you know, kind of going simultaneously and uh, they were competing against each other. And that kind of goes back to what I said last week with NIL and whether it's a, it's a free for all and everybody just kind of does whatever they want to do and, and makes their own rules up as they go along their own, I should say their own interpretations of the rules or do the conferences themselves start to like crack down and say, you know what? The NCAA is no longer going to be able to do anything. This is the, these are the parameters that we're setting up for NIL. And, you know, like with Ivy league and the academic Stanford standards that they make for themselves, doing something like that for NIL and having a, a conference that is built around that. And it's like, listen, we're not going to play schools that are not adhering to the parameters that we put together. I mean, look at high school football these days. IMG Academy, they can't play in the Florida uh, high school football championship. The, 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 the high school, the Florida high school, uh, um, high school association Athletic Association, I'm thinking in my FH, the high the Florida High School Athletic Association banned them from the Florida State playoffs like long ago. I, I don't even I, I think there was maybe a year that they they, they played in it, but they, they banned them basically. And then, you know, modern day played them a couple times. Then then modern day uh, CIF banned uh, modern day or any California school from playing IMG like associations themselves can make their own rules and say, listen, you want to be a part of this association. You want to be a part of this conference, this division, this league, et cetera. These are going to be the rules. NCAA is gone. It's archaic. It's done. There's no more national college sort of encompassing uh, rule maker anymore with, with NIL. We are going to worry about this smaller number of schools. And if you want to be a part of this association, a part of this conference, then you're going to have to go by these rules and, and you're all going to have to abide about it. And of course, you know, that brings up the questions about, you know, Oregon, you know, and, and how they do things through Nike and how Nike supplements them with recruiting and being a part of something like that. And, you know, I, I, again, what rules would you have in place? Would you bring a salary cap to the table? You know, how would that be legally? You know, these things are easier to do in the NFL because the NFL is a it's an organization 
it's you know all encompassing um it's privately owned it's it's different right it's just different in terms of how you do business whereas you're dealing with state universities and private universities and more of a hodgepodge uh from a from a regulation standpoint you, you might get sued you know it might be easier to sue. you ain't it's it's hard to sue the NFL. <laughs> it's hard to be a player in the NFL or a team, or whatever, and turn around and sue the NFL. Like it just doesn't work that way. You've got a, a limited number of of, uh, of of presidents and uh, and owners, and 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 you know they're in it and they're invested in it, and so things get worked out in inside, right? It's like you know we'll 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 figure our own stuff out. We don't need to go to the feds or or anybody outside, right? We're gonna take care of our own thing. I think it's tougher to do with college football, uh, with these conferences and what have you. But nevertheless, I just wonder if we don't see things kind of get to that point where all of a sudden we're not talking about Alabama and Ohio State and USC. We're, we're just talking about USC and Ohio State and Michigan and Notre Dame and whoever else because they've decided this is how we're going to approach NIL and it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same. We are not going – uh, you know, our parameters are going to be different than what they're going to do at Alabama and Miami and, who, and wherever else. And, and that's just that. And that in itself could weed out some some schools in these conferences. You know, I mean, you, you could have guys, schools of conferences just don't agree with that. And it's like, well, OK, cool. Go go to another conference. Go to the Big 12. Go wherever you want to go. All I'm saying is that we at Trevino Tech are waiting for that phone call. Our number's out there. Give us a call. We're ready to jump on board. For the Big West? With, yes. What, 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 what do you think about all that? I always got to throw this back at you because you like to just serve me up these questions and just let me rant. But what do you okay, think about Here's the thing, that? Gerard. Picture wise, I right? have an early morning. I don't have <laughs> nine hours to do this. To ponder life's questions of college football, bigger picture. I mean, you know, I, I think it's just, it's an interesting time in college football and I can't help but like look ahead and try to see how the puzzle pieces start to fall and, and, you know, what, what, what all becomes of this, because we're, we're definitely in this sort of like transformative, all the pieces are moving still, you know, nothing has been settled and um, it just leads me to believe, or it leads me to, to wonder about the fate of college football, you know, and, and it, these are, we, this is our job, right? This, we are impacted by this directly and, you know, how it, how it all comes together. And, uh, you know, the NIL thing is obviously at the top of, of, of the, the list of questions of how that's figured out. Cause right now it's a total mess. Yeah. I mean, there is, look, when USC and UCLA left for the big 10, it was a, epic tidal wave shockwave against the whole landscape and then you know it felt like there was a period of peace not peace but you know there was you always felt like something was coming if the pac-12 pac-9 didn't figure out something you know with their whole tv deal are we even having the discussion if the pac-12 was able to scrabble together some sort of tv deal and it became apparently evidently clear that none, none of that was going to work. And as all things tied back to, it came down to money. And the money wasn't there for the Pac-9. So everyone was out for themselves and jumped at the next opportunity they could find, whether that's Big 12, the Big 10. And honestly, I actually kind of feel bad just for the remainder of the schools, especially, you know, like Oregon State and Washington State. 
Yeah. I just feel like those are kind of, uh, you know, they're not, they're not blue bloods. Obviously they're not like even in that tier with Oregon and Oregon state. I mean, Washington, but they're, they've had, you know, good programs. They've had good coaches. They've had good seasons. You know, they have, I think they have two good coaches now, you know, with Jonathan Smith, I'm a fan of him and they've done a, a lot of good stuff in, you know, getting those programs back on track, especially with Oregon state. And, you know, I think they're an important piece of college football. You know, you know, we, it's not all about, you know, USC and Notre Dame and Alabama and LSU, but it's also about the little guys. It's also about, you know, the smaller schools like a Washington state, like an Oregon state, you know, pulling off historic wins and, you know, all those things that make kind of college football special and those rivalries and to see them kind of left in the, the dirt, if you will, in the, in the garbage, in the college football garbage dumpster, it just feels sad because, you know, I don't know what happens to, programs like that i don't know what happens to teams like that are they just going to become you know playing some division two division three kind of scrap heap while the super league plays on in the sec versus uh big 35 every year you know i i don't know but that that's kind of like one of the things i'm still thinking about is like i kind of feel bad for those teams, and I don't know what that spells for other small small schools across the country, like you know, like a Tulane or a like a Vanderbilt. Does that do they even have what it takes to kind of keep up with that, or or Cal for that matter? So with all you know, Cal, while they for the most part you know stink, but they obviously have great tradition there. They have some great players and great teams and great wins. And historic ways they should, they should have more. <laughs> they should have much sure, more. Sure, yeah. They've sort of made their own bid. I, I don't have a bid. I mean, I think I, that comes across pr- pretty clearly in terms of, I mean, people are going to say, oh, USC and UCLA killed the Pac-12. I'm like, no. I mean, Cal killed the Pac-12. The, the attitude that some of these schools had killed the Pac-12. But I do agree with you. There are programs like Oregon State and Washington State that probably did more with less. Um, could they have done more than they did in, in terms of investment? Or there's some other things that they were kind of just sucking off the teat a little bit and not um, putting more in fast enough. I don't know. I mean, that's that's very debatable. You got to know the economics of those schools and in terms of how much they're actually putting in the football and, and what their revenue looks like. But terms from fan base and everything, they really, you know, that's sort of the heart of of the Pac-12 as well. You know, you kind of think about, you know, Outson Stadium and Pullman and, um, you know, Corvallis. And, you know, there's a there's a sort of West Coast football that's that's dying here. But on the bright side, I mean, you still have Fresno State and you go and you look at Fresno State, you look at Fresno State fans. And that's not a part of the Big 12. That's not part of the Pac-12. They've never been, you know, a, a part of any kind of big conference. But fans in Fresno love their football still. And they're still uh, very much into it, despite uh, Fresno State not being a part of any of those bigger conferences. So, you know, it still can be done. There's still potential survival there for for those schools. Um, And I think that's what's going to end up being is that uh, it will be taken down a notch and it will be more of a whack. And you're just going to have Oregon State 
uh, in Nevada and UNLV and in Washington State, and, and they'll end up being just a, a smaller tier of football programs uh, in the West. And so uh, that's, you know, again, it's sad. It, it is definitely sad. It is unfortunate. There's the exciting sort of national look to the Big Ten and these clash of traditions and these clash of cultures, because you're talking now about schools playing interregionally, which is different, you know, and, and there's a good and a bad side to that. The good side is that you are going to see matchups that you haven't seen before, and you're going to see a contrast in styles more so than you've seen. Now, eventually that will settle itself out and conferences tend to have, I mean, in college football, they've always had their kind of extremes, you know, even within a conference, you'll have some schools that just do some crazy stuff. Um, but it's a little bit of a copycat, you know, league. You, you see it in the NFL as well. And the NFL is national. So it's not like, you know, uh, everybody's going to kind of do their own thing. There will be a sort of gravitational point to, you know, does this conference want to throw the ball more? Do they want to run the ball more? Are they going to do better defensively? A lot of that has to do with, you know, the, the, the athletes that they're recruiting and, uh, you know, what you can get away with in terms of weather, I think, does impact the, the Big Ten to some extent and has impacted USC's recruiting already when you're talking about offense and knowing that you're going to have to run the ball a little more when it gets in the late October and November. Um, and so that's the exciting part of it is this, oh, it's just this new thing with these new matchups. The sad part of it is that you're not going to see Oregon and Oregon State maybe play anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you might lose some of these matchups, Oklahoma and Oklahoma state bedlam. Like really, that's crazy. And, and the thing you didn't mention was that what uh, uh, preceded USC and UCLA going to the big 10 was Oklahoma and Texas going to the sec. Like yeah. kind of already forgotten about all that, but that's part of this as well. And that was, you know, USC kind of ended up as the Texas A&M year where Texas A&M was like, we don't want anything to do with Texas. Like we're going to the SEC, so we were unique, and we were like the only Texas school in the, in the SEC, and that's not the case anymore. And that was kind of USC had that only going for them for a couple months before Oregon's like, no, 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 we're coming too. So yeah, that that's that's another aspect of all of this is like you kind of have like the the uniqueness of it, but then as it expands, it just it's like you're just getting the same thing you did, but just in a in a different conference. You know, it's like the 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 comment that was made on the peristyle it's like how much of the pac 12 are you trying to bring into the big 10 and when does that actually become an issue you know like you you just want to take the good parts of the pac 10 pac 12 that actually add to the big 10 and not just you know those same problems that you had in a conference that failed yeah and my point is just that the little guy kind of deserves a seat in college football and i don't think that's going to happen moving forward and i will say Corvallis, the USC game last year, cultural balls about those those riveting atmospheres and fan passion. And that was one of the crazier games I covered. And that was my first time in Corvallis. And that was half a stadium. I mean, they didn't have half their stadium. And I can't imagine that place, you know, when it's fully renovated. And, you know, that was just a, a really fun environment. And if you doubt the importance of Oregon State, hey, just remember – they have a Heisman winner. They have a Heisman winner. A Heisman winner won at Oregon State, and it was the first player in the West Coast to win a Heisman. So they were the first Heisman on the West Coast. That was Terry Baker, 1962. So small schools are important, and they have history in college football. So I don't know what that is going to look like in the future, unfortunately. Gerard, it is time to go to listener questions, unless you're going to ambush me one more time. I thought you were going to say it's time to go to bed. 
I mean, do you just want to ask the questions? You want me to ask? Oh, okay. I thought, ask. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> <Ask>. <laughs> you want to ask me some or questions or are you just going to sit there? Uh, no, we can, uh, I mean, let's, let's get some questions going. I, people I have I, questions. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not. There are not uh, a lot of questions. No, but I'm not uh, confident in your ability to answer oh, with pace. Got rapid response time. Is that what we're doing right, Abraham? It, it even sounds like with when I ask you to do that, you, you, you actually make them longer. I feel like you actually make them longer despite me. But if you Maybe want, you should learn your lesson, son. Yeah. If you want to send us an email, you can email us at podcastcbcfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite in the subhead 10K, Gerald, Garage Martinez, Launcher Boys, whatever. And it'll go to my inbox. Uh, you can also DM me. You can also PM me. Don't do any of that to Gerard because it will not work and you will be disappointed. But Gerard, let's start off with a quicker one. This comes from Chris. It was a DM. With Stanford being left out of the Big Ten and Big 12, will that create an opportunity for them to flip quarterback Elijah Brown? Interesting question. Interesting thought. I was going to chew on this one, but my gut says no because Stanford is still a Stanford degree. But but then again, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that would have a lot to do with whether USC wants to make that push because I don't know how aggressive they really were in recruiting Elijah Brown. You know, that always seemed like a little bit of a question. Like they they liked him, but maybe he wasn't. They didn't love him. Yeah, as high on their board as other guys. And then, you know, the visit got canceled and it was like, okay, is this a Deandre Carter situation or is this more of a, you know, we're going to, we're going to kind of move on. And and if we can't get, you know, Dylan Riola, we're just going to go into the porthole and get another quarterback. So I don't know that that's a, that's a question that remains uh, kind of open-ended, but it, there's a possibility there, you know, maybe he has a really nice senior season, you know, and USC gives him another look. He plays best. In pads, right? He's he's a under the lights type of guy. He's a he's gamer. Not gonna go, yeah, he's not going to go and blow you away at the Elite Eleven. He's not going to go and blow you away at these quarterback camps. He he's not a big arm sort of big type um, quarterback with all those type of changeables up front. He's a guy that's a winner and and has uh, won at the highest levels of high school football with some of the best players in high school football. So yeah, there is a chance that um, you know he could get another look at some point during the season and USC could recruit him again. And I do think that kind of matters, you know, that's especially at the quarterback position, you know, are you getting the exposure that you really want to get at a school, which is at this point, not a part of the big 10, you know, we don't really know what's down the line. You know, would it shock me that Stanford was still potentially going to be a part of the the big 10? No. So it's, it's, it's also just what right now, because a lot of people were convinced no way Oregon's going to get in and lo and behold. <laughs> so, you know, we, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and, and say, okay, this is, you know, going to be the big 10. This is how it's going to go. Uh, we still got some time before, uh, you know, these, these games are played. The next set of questions comes from Andrew a, there's three of them. Greetings, amigos. Couple questions this week. Number one is USC's NIL approach. A hundred percent dictated by Lincoln Riley. Obviously, he needs the funds in order to compete, 
and anything you can share in terms of how fundraising is going would be great. But is it essentially his sole discretion for how USC disperses NIL funds? If so, that would make me feel a lot better about the strategy of not paying high school players. Another way of asking this, do you think CLR feels like he is recruiting at USC with one hand tied behind his back? That's a good question. And I've gotten a little bit of conflicting information on that. I would say, however, ultimately, the approach and philosophy is always going to be dictated by the person writing the check. So you could say, oh, no, this coach is is basically running the NIL. He has the board. He gives the board to the collective and says, these are A guys. These are B guys. These are C guys. And you work from there. But, you know, if you got some guy there and he's putting millions of dollars in the collective, you would say, well, you probably were involved in bringing the coach in and you paid the coach a bunch of money to come here and win games. Then you need to trust him. to make the board and say who we want and who's important. But I also know that people, you know, that have millions of dollars don't have millions of dollars just because of what other people want and what their advice is. You know, it's sometimes a little hard to, to, to be a very successful businessman or businesswoman and have somebody else dictate to you how to spend your money. So I, I, I don't, necessarily know that Lincoln is dictating exactly what happens and who's, you know, USC spending money on. And when I say USC, I mean the collectives that represent USC, obviously not the university directly because that is not how any of this works. Um, so yeah. And, and the amount of communication that can go on behind, you know, between the coaching staff and the collectives is still a little bit of a gray line. It's kind of hard to know, you know, what, what exactly can be said and what exactly is said. Um, at last check, there was still, from my understanding, more of an emphasis put on transfers than high school football players. And the thinking that too many of these high school football players, there was just there was just not enough known from them, you know, from a commodity standpoint to invest uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a, a, a player you know, maybe from out of state that's at a position that's like, okay, is that really a neat position? There's a lot of argument that goes on in NFL um, war rooms during the draft with all of this stuff, man. I mean, you, you, you've got the head coach, you've got the, the, the GM, you've got the, the personnel director, you've got your scouts. There's so much stuff that goes on, you know, who ultimately makes that call? Is it, is it the owner? Usually it's the owner. Now, in some situations, it is the head coach. The owner hires a head coach to be the guy. He's the guy. But in other situations, that's not true. <laughs> Jerry Jones. So, you know, I, I mean, at, at this level of college, you know, how does that really go? How, did, how, how does that really shake out? And I don't know if every college – I know every college is not doing it the same, but in terms of trying to figure out, you know, who gets the money and who is who can we endorse and who can we not endorse, you know, some of this also has to be thought – uh, from the standpoint of what NL was originally, you know, built for, were the private companies that you're able to get involved with endorsing certain players, right? So USC, I mean, USC should be kind of off the hook for Caleb Williams to some extent. Now I know I think uh, House of Victory has uh, a, a deal with him, and he's kind of like one of their guys, I believe. Um, but 
you know, he's getting good money from a bunch of other sources as well. So the the emphasis and the, the the stress on you know making him a deal and having him as a guy is taken off USC to a large extent. That's a big advantage for USC because they're going to be able to probably find more of those deals than some other schools. And so that in itself can kind of free you up to a certain extent, you know, and, and it goes back to that conversation of like, you know, should there be some type of salary cap involved in all this, you know, all these other conversations in terms of trying to keep things, I don't know if it's necessarily parody, but trying to keep things on the level as to, you know, what schools are doing and and what's being offered. And when you, when you kind of have this sort of free for all uh, wild, wild west that, that it is now, uh, that type of climate, it lends itself to a lot of scammers and grifters and people that get in there and they're trying to, you know, get some money out of it and everything. And so, you know, th- maybe that that's more of where you can get the argument for like there being some type of salary cap or, or there's some type of collective agreement among schools like, OK, this is how we're going to do business. This is who we're going to do business with. This is how we're going to audit all these things. And actually, you know, everybody kind of can keep tabs on what everybody else is doing. So there's some type of competitive, um, not necessarily equal playing field, but just at least everybody kind of knows what everybody else is doing. Uh, But for USC specifically, yeah, I, I tend to think that, you know, to some extent, yes, Lincoln Riley is dictating the, the, the philosophy, but I can't imagine and this goes back to Dakota Fields and Manasseh Tete committing, particularly Manasseh Tete, because we heard so much about NIL with him and him committing after the visit and things that were said after the visit where you're like, okay, well, USC is, they're going to be more aggressive with recruiting high school players. And then he decommits, you know, less than two months later. And it's like, well, nope, we're back to square one. This is kind of where USC was last year. And, and, and we know how that played out. And we know that, you know, through that whole cycle, it was like, yep, U.S. just a lot of these players, U.S. is not going to be involved with because they're not getting down that way. That's 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 not how they're going to approach it. They're going to uh, be more aggressive from that standpoint, going after transfers that, um, you know, they feel like are are going to be impact players that that have proven themselves to some extent somewhere else. The second part of this question is, do you think there's enough data at this point in the CLR era to feel like the staff's ability to read recruitments is not A+. plus? I'm judging that based on how many players they have gone all in for without having any backup options. Connerly, Lomu, Riola, Taylor Tatum, KVA all come to mind. Though their backup option, though maybe their backup option is in the portal, do you think part of that is the support staff of recruiters isn't built out enough to where they can be cultivating backup options? While the position coaches focus on the top dogs, I will say I don't think there's enough data for that because this is entering the for second full cycle for USC. And, you know, with a lot of those guys, it was kind of different things with Connerly. USC was it until it wasn't at the very end, you know, due to some uh uh well, we've talked about it before. Lomu, you know, they were kind of slow playing Lomu. And that kind of uh, worked against them. Taylor Tatum, same thing. The lead school until baseball came into the picture with Oklahoma. KVA, obviously, they were put behind the ball because of the previous staff and their lack sort of communicate or lack of recruitment for him. And that allowed other schools to have a deeper relationship with him. 
when they came along. And then Dylan Raiola, well, the Dylan Raiola thing is a, a entirely kind of weird, different thing, and just not wanting to play for Lincoln Riley USC. I I'm not sure. So all these are different kind of things. So I don't think I don't think I don't think that there's enough data point to feel for that. And, you know, it's recruiting. Sometimes you swing and miss. But the issue with the last staff is they weren't swinging. They were swinging, but they were swinging for not top dogs. They were swinging for kind of lower end things. And they were still kind of missing in addition to missing on top dogs. Um, I'm going to say that there isn't enough data yet to make an actual determination, but it's looking like that. Um, because you're talking about recruitments and why they missed out on guys. The question specifically is read and getting off a guy soon enough that you have a plan B or plan C that is still a good enough player that you are not just completely like you, you, you got to go in the portal, right? You're just, you, you, the drop off to the next guy is significant. So, you know, in, in this case saying, you know, you, you, you put all your eggs in the basket of Dylan Riola two different times and you didn't offer a bunch of different guys who you could have had, you know, 10 offers out there and work some other guys. And at some point you've got to read, you know, Dylan Riola just isn't feeling us. You, you can't say, well, Dylan, you're, you're going to be the only guy we offer. And because you feel confident and, and certainly after, you know, his, his visit where that, that comment was made and he had reported, you know, that they had basically shut it down and they were going to recruit him. Um, that was a bad read because he clearly wasn't ready to shut it down for USC. And he may have said, you know, off the record behind the scenes, coach, I really want to be a Trojan. And, and you go, okay, we're, we're going to stop recruiting anybody else. Um, so, you know, that you have to consider that, but then, you know, you see at, at at some point when he goes and he takes other visits and he visits Ohio State, like you got to make that pivot quickly. You know, you you do have to make that read quick to where you go, OK, this is not lining up with what the kid and the parents are telling me behind the scenes. We need to go talk to Julian Sam. Well, we still have a chance to talk to him. We need to go talk to whatever linebacker is out there because, yeah, we feel like we're making a move with uh, Kingston Valle but are we are we really willing to put the Mike linebacker position and the future of it just on him, so to speak? So I think there have been quite, you know, there've been a number now of situations where, yeah, USC's gotten a bit myopic on recruiting, you know, a specific player. Taylor There's Taylor, that word again. Another but, guy. But um, if I may counter, okay, you know, you know, I'm not really counting Lomu in this conversation because. As yeah, Lamu, no, they, not at all. I they don't slow so. played him. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, absolutely. And he was, I, and I don't, I don't entirely know why they did that. Um, but they already had a pretty good uh, a class, and I think Caleb Lamu is a good player, but he wasn't like, I don't know, that wasn't gonna like wasn't Connerly revolutionize the class. It wasn't right? Connerly? No, it wasn't Connerly. Right. Exactly, exactly. And Connerly, you can't include him in that either because they didn't have a chance to get a plan B in that situation. Right, right. But, that, but I'm saying with Connerly and like Tatum, USC was like it. You know, it was yeah, – yeah, you can make the case that USC should have pivoted to a different running back earlier. But 
for the most part, USC was all with Taylor Tatum. You know, everything we were hearing is that it's USC, it's USC, it's USC. Obviously, then smoke for Oklahoma came out. And at that point, do you just I, I don't remember the exact timeline of Taylor Tatum when that and how long ago was how long after that he uh, committed to Oklahoma. I it was think a little it was like, while. He did like three weeks. And he yeah, took, it was like three weeks or something. I want to say his visit to Oklahoma was the 16th, I think. I think it was the big weekend that USC was having. He came in the first week of June. Then he didn't go anywhere the week after. And we weren't sure because Georgia was talking to him a little bit. Texas was talking to him a little bit. So you're thinking, okay, is he going to take a visit? And then he didn't take any visits. So then the fever of, oh, my God, he's going to USC. And the and the buzz just – it got bigger and bigger for USC. And I think at that point, if he uh, – you know, you have to – again, you have to read the situation. You have but, to – But you're saying you're, you pivot off that? You pivot off Well, that. it's – the question is, do you bring in uh, Christian Clark? Do you bring in somebody – do you do you try to get Nate Frazier in during the summer, make that call? Do you get another – do you offer um, uh, Derek uh, McFall oh. out of Tyler, Texas, four-star running back who's like a USC childhood favorite? You know, I was told by a source at one point – USC liked him, but thought, you know, he might commit on the spot and they were still looking at Taylor Tatum. Now that was back in like April or March. So that was a little earlier and they were still kind of getting things going and they felt good about Taylor Tatum. So it was like too early. They're like, no, 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 we're not going to, we don't want to offer this guy, which I, I think was a good read at that point in time. You need to kind of see how the board plays itself out. But the question here, the devil is advocating. We didn't bring in any other running backs, even for visits during the summer and that and that is a, a that's the i i think that's a ve- a viable argument for you know you you need you need to do that you needed to have some plan b's that were at least on campus you know make that happen with christian clark get him on campus make that happen with uh, nate palmer you know the other uh, running back out of decatur texas make that happen with somebody else and it's definitely armchair quarterbacks because like you said <laughs> You're you're uh you're you're feeling really good about Taylor Tatum, you know, and, and but that's part of the read. That's that's the that's the criticism. That's the question. You know, it's like you can feel good all you want about whoever after they're on campus and they've officially visited, and they didn't commit publicly. You know, that good feeling is just a feeling, man. You got to figure out what the reality is and what you know, and and make that read. And it's difficult. See, okay. If, if if now we need to start thinking, and that the weird thing was is that I was actually told after that visit from Tatum, and this was like the week after, I think it was like the week after. Um, yeah, you know what? It, 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 USC's feeling confident, you know, they I got the vibe, like the, you know, that definitely feel good, but there's some other guys that are coming in for visits too, and you know, the competition is still pretty tough for Taylor Tatum, and there was this absolute impression I got that there was going to be some more visits from other running backs and it just didn't happen. And that obviously didn't happen because Taylor Tatum was saying all the right things behind the scenes, but you know, actions speak louder in the recruiting say it all the time. And his actions were to kind of wait and wait and then take Oklahoma visit and then sort of wait and wait. And then, you know, it was just back and forth, back and forth. Um, the interesting thing is not to offer McFall even later when you started hearing Oklahoma and baseball might have turned 
the tide there in his in in Taylor Tatum's recruitment, they had Derek McFall came up with Cali Power and they all visited uh, USC unofficially when they were doing the OT7 tournament and all those kids went up to USC and that was when Derek McFall said, I think I'm going to get offered after they visited. He says, I think I'm going to get offered Sunday. And he made that prediction and he never got offered. And it, I mean, you know, maybe USC just not that high on Derek McFall. I mean, that's just, you know, sure. Maybe they're, and it's clear they're not high on Nate Frazier or yeah. Right. Even, or so, but you got to find but, somebody. So <laughs> I know, but if like Taylor Tatum tells you what was his visit first, first week of june, june it was a june 2nd i think that that week if he tells you like i'm in coach got the you emoji say, okay ready. cool go ahead and post it on twitter and we'll like it <laughs> but like and if he what says, is the coach i still want to go see oklahoma first you say okay cool well we still like you know some other school or some other running backs and you know we wanted them to visit here too so you go and take that visit to oklahoma and we'll have nate palmer and christian clark and couple other guys come down and, you know, we'll see what happens, man. You know, it's cool. You, you're looking, we're looking, we got to figure this out. You, uh, you got to figure you out. And we got to figure us out sort of thing. So, I mean, I think that's pretty par for the course when it comes to recruiting most of the time. And, and, and the, and the Taylor Tatum thing is one. And, you know, there's some others, like I said, there's some others in there that were mentioned like Josh, Josh Connerly, which I don't, that's not, that's at the end. That was like, I mean, it was really tough for USC. Hour. Because USC made up so much ground and they had him. And that was like a huge position, left tackle, hadn't gotten a good left tackle in like three cycles. And then it was like 11th hour, he takes that unofficial visit to Oregon, which is a huge red flag. And then, you know, decides to go to Oregon, right? Because, you know, Eugene reminds him so much of Seattle. <laughs> but that's but that's 11th hour. That's like there was nobody else. There's no plan B there or anything. It's like, you know, USC was just kind of happy to be in it. And, you know, it, it stung because they almost got him. But they're but the Dylan Riola is different. You know, Tatum's different. Those 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 are guys where you definitely and, and to some extent KVA, um, you kind of put that all on those guys and, and, and rode with it and maybe didn't have other guys that, you know, some local players that. You, you were involved with it, you could always go and pull the trigger with. And so, you know, but at, at that time, you're also, you have to look at what your plan B's are and what your plan C's are and whether you're mm -hmm. just offering guys to offer guys or you're offering guys because you feel like they can really contribute and they can really play. And that's where the temptation of falling back on the transfer portal is, is so great because you know that some of these guys are going to be able to come in and play day one. You get a guy like a Mason Cobb. You get a guy like a Bear Alexander. Now we're going to see this season how much of an impact those guys had, but we saw the impact of some of the players that they brought in the year before, you know, guys like Jordan Anderson, you know, Jordan Addison, um, guys like, uh, I'm trying to think of somebody, it's not Caleb Williams because <laughs> that was obviously unique. He and, uh, and Mario Williams coming in. That's, that's a little different. Um, but, you know, guys like Solomon Bird, there were some guys there that made, uh, an impact last season for USC, Makai Blackman, obviously. And that's like, that's a week of recruiting, you know, the difference between like going after that guy where it seems like the money people involved with USC are a bit more. And again, this is where the question goes in, how much is dictated by, by Lincoln Riley. I mean, Lincoln Riley has all of his wishes and all his, I'd like to do this, but at the end of the day, it's not his money. You know, it's it's the it's the boosters that that you're 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 saying, hey man, I I know you give millions of dollars to the university already, 
can you give, you know, like, yeah, maybe like $50,000, maybe $70,000 more. And we could kind of get something together, some kind of a little package for this guy. And, and when you can show college film, when you can say, Hey, this guy went to Belitnikoff, it's a little easier sell than, Hey, there's this kid that's this five-star from Dallas Christian high school. And yeah, I know. Well, look at the huddle film. He's really good. Look coach. He's, he's yeah. You know, and it's like, it's not the same. It's definitely, you're, you're definitely gambling a little bit more on some of those high school kids than you are uh, a guy that went to Blitnikoff <laughs> in college or a guy that's coming from Georgia and you can show him the national championship game. He has two sacks. I mean, that's, you know, that's uh, just an easy headline to sell. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like, I don't know what I feel. I just feel like there's arguments for me. There's arguments for you. There's arguments for Lincoln. Rather, there's arguments for every which way. I, well, yeah, I'm it's not, a question. And yeah, it's I a mean, question. I, and I'm not saying they're, I'm not saying they're terrible at reading recruitments. I'm just saying they've been snake big by a couple, but I think they've also have done great reads on recruitments. So I, I just think, you know, yeah, Tackett Curtis was a was a, a situation where they could have been kind of in they they was basically the opposite they they really kind of put it all in the Tackett Curtis and it was like and maybe that's why they gave Curtis. they got so much confidence with you know maybe. Kingston Villiama you know you yeah, did it right. last year you think you could do it again and sure you know you get right. a little confident get a little cocky and you had a great season last year well you know at the end but you you built something. In 2022, you got the momentum in 2023 recruitment. You thought, you know, it success maybe clouded you a little bit, but I think that you had some uh, you had some uh, reason to be confident uh, when you're kind of going after him. So yeah, I mean, they could be better at reading, but also I think they they've done a good job in certain in certain recruitments of reading it spot on. Yeah, which is why I think that the jury is still out. I don't think you can make that call yet but i do i'm i cannot deny that there are data points there and there are recruitments there where it's like okay again i'll use that word that like so much being a little myopic and kind of tunnel vision on you know do we bring in extra running backs do we do we kind of expand our quarterback offer list you know or is it because i mean we're even looking at the future here at the quarterback position and we're looking at Julian Lewis and if he classifies to 2025, I mean, <laughs> USC doesn't have anybody offered right now as a 2025 quarterback. Um, and they're not, they, I mean, technically they're not really recruiting anybody right now for 2024. So if they get Julian Lewis, nobody will care, you know, if they get Julian Lewis, exactly. If they that's, get Julian Lewis, no one will and care. And that was like that, that's the same thing with Tackett Curtis, right? When they got Tackett Curtis, it was like, Nobody remembers that they got Tackett Curtis, and that that could have gone the other way uh, for USC. You know, we could be adding him to the list. Remember when they just went after Tackett Curtis and they pretty much ignored all the other linebackers in that class and blah 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 and uh, middle linebackers at least. And 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 but we you know so that again I I think that there's data points enough at least with like I get like Tackett Curtis where you you know you put all your eggs in that basket and you 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 you're able to win that one. Um, but, but there are other ones on the other uh, side of things too. And I, and there are probably more on the other side of things. So that's got to be sorted out. That absolutely has to be sorted out. And, um, you know, is it again, part of NIL and that sort of what goes on beyond the scenes and just things can change that quickly, or is there something else going on there? You know, we just don't know yet. Yeah, right. Grizzly Adams had a beard. Grizzly Adams did have a beard. 
All right, I'm done sparring with you over this question. Let's finish <laughs> out Andrew's sparring. question. There's devil's advocate. There's you. You're just trying to look at all the angles of the question, and and, and put it out there. And, I'm just not one. Decide. I yeah. I mean, I don't want to always be in agreement with you, so I had to just you know, yeah. give a different point as I and was it was saying. good. I mean, I think that the bringing up Tackett Curtis is that's a great point. That's a that's a great example of it working for USC and how they approach that recruitment and the call that they made. And I mean, it'll give Tackett Curtis a little bit of credit because he's the one who changed that, that visit from being, you know, the big recruiting golden hour weekend. I mean, maybe he gets caught up in it and he commits, you know, but maybe he feels like he's just one of another guy. And, you know, he, he's the one. Now it feels like Tackett was reading his own recruitment. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Now, it, he, now it feels now I feel like Tack Curtis isn't a point in my favor. Now I feel now like I know we're taking that you're, off. You're of, kind of talking that out of a, you're talking that off the table. Gerard, that, so was gotta, that was all I USC. That was all USC. Odom, <laughs> all Brian Odom, USC, Lincoln Riley. That's a, that's a definitely a check mark for them. Just we'll, we'll just okay. leave it at that. The final part from Andrew's question, given how much July sucked for us, can you feed us any tiny, tiny morsel of unsubstantiated rumors and or give us the bull case? Bull case? I don't know what a bull case is. Full case? I have no idea uh, what this uh, spell check. I love that check. you can read questions out loud before and you just not – there's parts of it that you That's just have what no makes idea. it fun. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> so give us the bull case. right now on the air. The best <laughs> no. case. Best case, bull Best case. case. Give us okay. the bull case for USC recruiting going forward. Make us feel good. That. All camps, yes, you did. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to read off. You had a grown man shouting at you to make him feel good. Oh, I mean, you know, I, I get it. I understand it. But, the, but unfortunately, people they 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 seek high and far and wide to try to get those things. And anybody that tells them what they want to hear, it's like. That's the guy with all the information. He's the most plugged in guy. He, I got to go over there to listen to him. It's like, dude, you're just these people just telling you what you want to hear, man. But we give you, yeah, a little bit of that scenario of like, hey, listen, there's some recruitments that USC could play themselves potentially back into, right? There's some guys there that I think certainly and locally, like you could potentially maybe, you know, turn around again. And, and you know, guys like uh, Dakota Fields who, you know, flip – Flip kind of twice already. You know, people he didn't go publicly the first time he committed to Oregon, but I got a, a couple sources that told me, yeah, man, he, he's like, excuse me, bless you, done for Oregon, and then uh, he committed to USC, and uh, so you know maybe if uh, USC can get him back on campus, and again late, you know, and and they're winning games, it's like last 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 one in his ear is going to get his uh, signature, and what is the most important thing in this life? Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line, which is dotted. Great segue. Great segue. Our final question comes from Cade. Hey, Chris and Hurricane. What is your opinion of the strategy laid out by the coaching staff to stop recruiting guys if they won't commit when they want to? An example would be DeAndre Carter. It seems a bit odd. They would give up on recruiting him when he wasn't ready to commit to them back in July is this a sound strategy or does it reek of not wanting to recruit as much during the season? The rocket ship analogy doesn't really work if you have guys to Tay and Fields jumping off mid-flight. You guys are awesome. Well, thanks, Kate. I think you are awesome. Gerard is the would you would we call it the He really pressure? called it out there, didn't he? He like, you know, we've been like very kind of coy about the whole idea. Uh, <laughs> 
Carter recruitment. He just like calls it out there. Like what's going on here? Why are they uh, telling kids uh, that uh, you got to commit right away? Or we call it the pressure commitment, the pressure strategy. You know, it's, um, you're trying to kind of get some momentum going and, you know, and, and, and again, read, you know, it's another read. You're, you're looking to see, is this kid like we feel like he's ready to go, right? You know, we're talking to him and he feels like he like we're on the same page. And um, you know, you're you're trying to kind of build that momentum a little bit and you start getting commitments, commitments, commitments. You see how it works. I mean, you see it on the board, like everybody's excited, everybody's pumped up, like, oh, this guy commit, and the next day another commitment, and, and it just like it it seems like, oh my gosh, we're just never gonna end, and USC's gonna have the number one team in the nation. I, I mean, I was called out on the peristyle, you know, like, oh, Gerard, you said you're only going to be around like seven or eight. And look at, we are a top five. Ah, oh, you're so wrong. You know, and it's like, everybody just wants to like get caught up into it. They want to get caught up into the, 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 the craziness that's going on uh, in, the, in a positive way, you know, with, with recruiting. And it's like, you, you listen, man, we, we, and it works both ways. It, it, even when things are great, you know, you kind of have to like say, all right, take a step back, relax a little bit. You know, some things are going to shake out here. And then when things are bad, you, you have to do the same thing. You know, it's uh, the old saying uh, it's never uh, is, is, is good as it looks or as bad as it seems. And so I think, you know, that's kind of where we are with uh, with recruiting right now. I mean, I know USC would rather have momentum kind of going into the season and not really have to think about, you know, replacing spots that they lost during the season. USC, it's kind of crazy. It might be a record of how many guys they've actually had decommit from the 2024 class because <laughs> they've had a lot of decommitments now from this 24 class. I mean, you go back to like, guys like Aaron Butler and Dylan Williams and you know like there's there's been a few decommitments from this class so it's 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 a different kind of different era and it's a different thing for USC especially with 11 wins behind them that's the thing you got the you got the premier head coach got the guy with all the credibility and you go out and you win those games and yeah you know you didn't you didn't end the season particularly well and I'm sure that didn't help um but still you know you're used to uh, USC just, you know, killing it on the recruiting trail and not having any decommitments for that matter. Um, the class would obviously look a little different, you know, if you had all those guys still committed uh, in the 24 class and then you, you know, you had the guys that you got over the summer. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the uh, original question of, I guess, philosophy and, and strategy in terms of the sort of press, again, that's Reed. Um I think with DeAndre Carter, it, it wasn't necessarily – I don't think there was any, like, we're going to stop recruiting you. I think it was more, I'm not going to commit right now, and I don't want to be pressured into being in committing on a visit. And I get the vibe I'm going to be pressured, so I'm I'm canceling that visit. And then that really kind of and, – and certainly what helped is that you felt good about Makai Santa. And so, again, read on the other side. So we have a check here, and then we got a check here on the other side is USC obviously likes Makai Siena. Now, you know, there's a guy that he's in Texas, and, you know, is Texas going to leave him alone? Is, is Texas saying, I'm going to stop, stop calling him? Some of these other schools, you know, I probably not. So you got to keep recruiting him. But that's one where they, they obviously felt confident about that, and they're going to bring him in on that visit. And it's like, hey, listen, you know, we've only got so much room, and we've got a guy that's ready to commit, and so we need to kind of do a check a status report on other guys that we like as well. 
maybe even more. And that's how that played out, in, in my opinion, and from what I've gathered uh, over the past couple months. So uh, does that mean, you know, now that the spot has opened up uh, because you have Manasseh um, Tete that, that has commit and then subsequently decommit, I don't know, because I don't know that uh, DeAndre Carter is a tackle at the next level, and you're still, I think, looking for an offensive tackle. Um, I, you know, and overall, if we do want to talk about strategy, I still don't think that you necessarily may need to make that move for either or, you know, I mean, you, you say, hey, DeAndre, you gotta come, come down. You feel like committing on your, your visit. Cool. If you don't, we got another guy that's ready to commit. Let him commit. You know, we'll see what happens when they're not say a tete. We'll see what happens with uh, freaking Hayden Ted or Treader. We, we, like, who knows? Who knows? You know, it's it's not signing day yet. That works both ways. And so, you know, my philosophy would always be just get everybody you can. Every big body, every anybody who's good on your board that you like, that you think can contribute, that is worth taking, you take from a commitment standpoint. And then you let that stuff shake itself out during the season. Like, hey, you know, sorry, DeAndre, just, you know what? Ah, I didn't have the season that we wanted. And, you know, we're starting to think that, you know, from a scheme standpoint, maybe you don't fit. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that kind of can shake commitments loose if, if that's how it goes. Um, so that part of it, I don't necessarily totally understand. I mean, and that's that's there's just been a couple instances of that where it's like, you know, an either or and like either or, man, that shouldn't come till signing day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you never know who's uh, who's all in and, and who ends up being Manasseh Atete. And who's not going to sign on that dotted line? The line uh, which is dotted. All right, that is our final question. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually, um, as we were kind of going through this final uh, stretch of questions, uh, I actually became uh, Instagram friends with uh, our friend Eddie from Orange, and he DM'd me, mm-hmm. and so he sent me a voicemail over. Uh, the Instagram. I don't know if you can hear it. I kind of wanted to try to play it. I don't know. Can you hear this? Eddie from Orange here. Question for Gerald and 18K. Um, actually, two questions. First question. Uh, can you hear this, Fred? 18K, yeah. can you tell everyone exactly how much Anthony Lucas weighed when he came in? People are freaking out. Already did it. Like Already got it. Since, uh, showing up at USC, I hear cars. Did you hear all that clearly? I, I did. I not clearly, not clearly. <laughs> well, if you couldn't tell, the first part was why. The, yes, I heard that. The Anthony Lucas way. We already did. Right. And the second part is why are the free safety and strong safety flipped, and why is the Mike linebacker lineup on the the wide side of the field? I will give you thirty seconds to attempt uh, to answer this. Uh, it's so. Oh, well, that kind of goes back to the whole like, is Kalen Bullock? Strong safety, free safety. Free safety, yes. Yeah, and, and traditionally, body type wise and what have you, uh, he's a free safety all day. You know, he's the guy that would be single high. 
um, in those in those coverages. Um, I don't know why, actually, like breakdown wise, uh, with Mike linebacker and middle linebacker, that's a little different, especially with USC, considering they had uh, Eric Gentry as a Mike linebacker. So, you know, I think Mike linebacker in that defense was the guy that was making calls. And I don't know if it was necessarily uh, positionally always correct. So that 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 was a little different. Um, but with the safety thing, yeah, that you would always almost always have the, the strong safety on the strong side of the field. But more importantly, these days with with defenses, it's a strong safety is going to be the guy that you have up near the line of scrimmage. So it could be short side. It could still be wide side, uh, depending on another team's formation and their tendencies. You know, if, if they're they're running, you know, with with RPO and what have you. Um, so that's a little bit more of an indicator to me these days, just with the way teams line up. Um, it's the, it, the guy that's going to be single high mostly is, is going to be your free safety and you could call him whatever. Cause I mean, these schools nowadays call them other names. Um, uh, your bandit or your, your robber, you know, like they've, they've, there's always been different names and even with linebackers, there's sometimes different names. Although I would say Mike will Sam have, is kind of pretty, Pretty universal for the most part, um, but anyways, uh, I I think it's more like ability wise. You tend to say the free safety is the guy that's most like the coverage corner, like the guy that you can put in man coverage or the guy that you can put back that's got to cover both sidelines because he's a single high and you don't have two high safeties. So that would be more the free than necessarily strong side weak side um, these days. And and because you, I mean, again, it's there's so many different takes on formations and personnel and what have you um you may want to do something a little different uh in terms of strong side weak side it's more who's the guy you're going to put near the line of scrimmage you know are you going to put kalen will kill a bullet near the line of scrimmage probably not uh you're going to put the guy that would be more your traditional strong safety at the line of scrimmage which would be maybe a bryson shaw or a jalen smith um, or in the case of uh, who we talked about today, Zion Branch. Zion's unique, though, because Zion's a big body. He's a big boy, but he does have the athleticism to also play back and to play in the middle of the field. So, you know, he, he's, he's – uh, he, if he's he 100% from that knee injury, he could compete in a lot of different positions. Let's just say that. Somebody gets hurt, you know, he, 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 he's got more tools than the average uh, safety to be able to do – you know, he's not sort of pigeonholed in terms of his body type and his athleticism. And time, I clocked you at three minutes and 12 seconds. Eddie, I hope you're happy. That final question and time broke my spirit. That is the end of our episode of Composite Two Star Recruits. Before we go, I did want to shout out tribute to Troy, who actually sent me a nifty little tool to use at tribute to troy.com which has all the jersey numbers ever worn by any ever player because we had such a difficult time figuring out the number 89 jersey 89 so thompson i'm just i'm just gonna read these off as i end this podcast jacoby lane sean mahoney austin appleby christian rector daquan hampton before switching to 13, Christian Thomas, Blake Ailes, Dale Thompson, as Gerard just mentioned, John Alred, Eric McKee, Hobby Brenner, great name in the 1980s, Jim Obradovich, Obradovich, Obdovich, I don't know, Charles Young, Nate Shaw, Toby Thurlow, 
Larry Boys, Ludwig Keen, Chuck Greenwood, Dan Zimmerman, Paul Salata, and the first man to ever wear the number 89 for the Trojans in 1940, left end Lewis Hindley. I am Chris. That is Gerard. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we will catch you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. That leopard sucks!